These doctors stepped into the breach left by the government agencies and pandemic centers and began coordinating the development of early treatments with repurposed drugs. They quickly proved that they could drastically reduce COVID's lethality. Instead of winning applause as medical healers, their success at treating COVID made them enemies of the state. Long before he heard of Pierre Corey or FLCCC, Dr. Peter McCullough reached the same conclusions about the futility and immorality of the federal effort and felt the same indignation and determination to change things. By April and May, I noticed a disturbing trend, recalls McCullough. The trend was no effort to treat patients who are infected with COVID-19 at home or in nursing homes. And it almost seemed as if patients were intentionally not being treated, allowed to sit at home and get to the point where they couldn't breathe and then be admitted to the hospital. Dr. Fauci adopted this unprecedented protocol of telling doctors to let patients diagnosed with a positive COVID test go home untreated, leaving them in terror and spreading the disease until breathing difficulties forced their return to hospitals. There they faced two deadly remedies, remdesivir and ventilators. I experienced my own personal frustrations with this bewildering policy. When in December 2020, I asked my 93-year-old mother's physician to describe her treatment plan if she got a positive PCR, he told me, there is really nothing we can do unless she starts having trouble breathing, and we will send her up to Mass General for ventilation. When I asked him about using ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, he shrugged his shoulders. He had never heard of their use in COVID patients. There is no early treatment for COVID, he assured me. Dr. Fauci's choice to deny infected Americans early treatment was not just a bad public health strategy. It was, McCullough avows, cruelty at a population level. Says McCullough, never in history have doctors deliberately treated patients with this kind of barbarism. I told myself, I am not going to tolerate that in my practice or on a national level or worldwide, Dr. McCullough told me. Realizing that COVID had to be fought on multiple fronts, McCullough began contacting physicians in other nations who were reporting success against the disease, including doctors in Italy, Greece, Canada, across Europe, and in Bangladesh and South Africa. McCullough continues, if this had been any other form of pneumonia, a respiratory illness, or any other infectious illness in the human body, we know that if we start early, we can actually treat much more easily than wait until patients are very sick. McCullough says that the rule holds true for COVID-19. We learned quickly that it takes about two weeks for someone infected with COVID to get sick enough at home to require hospitalization. Frontline clinical doctors quickly recognized that the disease was operating through multiple pathways, each requiring their own treatment protocol. There were three major parts of the illness, says McCullough. One, the virus was replicating for as long as two weeks. Two, there was incredible inflammation in the body. And three, that was followed by blood clotting. He adds, by April 2020, most doctors understood a single drug was not going to be enough to treat this illness. We had to use drugs in combination. We quickly developed three principles, says McCullough. His three-step protocol was as follows. Use medications to slow down the virus. Use medications to attenuate or reduce inflammation. Address blood clotting. McCullough and his global partner. Hold on just one second. Whose mic is that? In the course of the disease. McCullough chronicles the rapid pace with which frontline doctors uncovered rich apothecaries of effective COVID remedies. HHS's early studies supported hydroxychloroquine's efficacy against coronavirus since 2005. And by March 2020, doctors from New York to Asia were using it against COVID with extraordinary effect. That month, McCullough and other physicians at his medical center organized with the FDA one of the first prophylactic protocols using hydroxychloroquine. We had terrific data on ivermectin from the medical teams in Bangladesh and elsewhere by early summer 2020. So now we had two cheap generics. McCullough and his growing team of 50-plus frontline doctors discovered that while HCQ and IVM work well against COVID, adding other medications boosts outcomes drastically. These included azithromycin or doxycycline, zinc, vitamin D, Celebrex, Romhexine, NAC, IV vitamin C, and quercetin. McCullough's team realized that, like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, quercetin, that ubiquitous health store nutraceutical, is an ionophore, meaning that it facilitates zinc uptake in the cells, destroying the capacity of coronavirus to replicate. 
The Canadians came on with Colchicine in a high-quality trial based on an initial Greek trial, McCullough continued. We learned more from experts at UCLA and elsewhere with respect to blood clotting and the need for aspirin and blood thinners. We got early approval for monoclonal antibodies. It was later learned that both fluvoxamine and famotidine could play roles in multidrug treatment. LSU Medical School professor Paul Harch discovered peer-reviewed papers from China, where researchers there had been using hyperbaric chambers, HBOT, with stunning success. Between April and May, a group of NYU researchers reproduced that success by getting patients off ventilators and quickly recovering 18 of 20 ventilator cases using HBOT. Yale is currently conducting phase three with stellar early results. There were many other promising treatments. Asian nations were using saline nasal lavages to great effect to reduce viral loads and transmission. McCullough discovered he could prophylax patients and drop viral load and prevent transmission with a variety of other oral nasal rinses and dilute viricidal agents, including povidone iodine, hydrogen peroxide, hypochlorite, and Listerine or mouthwash with pyridinium chloride. Mass General's infectious disease maven, Dr. Michael Callahan, had seen hundreds of patients in Wuhan in January 2020 and assessed the impressive efficacy of Pepsid in over-the-counter indigestion medicine. The Japanese were already using prednisone, judesonide, and famotidine with extraordinary results. By July 1st, McCullough and his team had developed the first protocol based on signals of benefit and acceptable safety. They submitted the protocol to the American Journal of Medicine. That study, titled The Pathophysiologic Basis and Clinical Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment of COVID-19, quickly became the world's most downloaded paper to help doctors treat COVID-19. It is extraordinary that Dr. Fauci never published a single treatment protocol before that, says McCullough, and that America's doctor has never to date published anything on how to treat a COVID patient. It shocks the conscience that there is still no official protocol. Anyone who tries to publish a new treatment protocol will find themselves airtight blocked by the journals that are all under Fauci's control. The Chinese published their own early treatment protocol on March 3rd, 2020, using many of the same categories of prophylactic and early treatment drugs uncovered by McCullough. Chloroquine, a cousin of hydroxychloroquine, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, antihistamines, a variety of steroids, and probiotics to stabilize and fortify the immune system, and apothecaries of traditional Chinese medicines, vitamins, and minerals, including a variety of compounds containing quercetin, zinc, and glutathione precursors. The Chinese made early treatment the central priority of their COVID strategy. They used intense and intrusive track and trace surveillance to identify and then immediately hospitalize and treat every COVID-infected Chinese. Early treatment helped the Chinese to end their pandemic by April 2020. We could have done the same, says McCullough. Though now he is often censored, the AMA still lists Dr. McCullough's study as the most frequently downloaded paper for 2020. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS, downloaded and turned McCullough's AMA article into its official treatment guide. AAPS Director Dr. Jeremy Snavely told me in August 2021 that the guide had 122,000 downloads. We figure it has been seen by over a million people. It's the only trusted guide. Our phone never stops ringing. Mostly the calls are from physicians and patients desperate for the help they cannot get from any HHS website. By autumn, frontline physicians had assembled a pharmacopoeia of repurposed drugs, all of which were effective against COVID. By that time, more than 200 studies supported treatment with hydroxychloroquine and 60 studies supported ivermectin. We combine these medicines with doxycycline, azithromycin, to suppress infection, says McCullough. Another meta-analysis supported the use of prednisone and hydrocortisone and other widely available steroids to combat inflammation. Three studies supported the use of inhaled budesonide against COVID. An Oxford University study, published in February 2021, demonstrated that that treatment could reduce hospitalizations by 90% in low-risk patients. And a publication in April 2021 showed that recovery was faster for high-risk patients too. Furthermore, 
a very large study supported colchicine as an anti-inflammatory. Finally, McCullough's growing array of physicians had observational data from late-stage treatment of hospitalized patients with full-dose aspirin and antithrombotics, including enoxaparin, apixaban, rivaroxaban, divigatran, edoxaban, and full-dose anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin for blood clots. We were able to show that doctors can work with four to six drugs in combination, supplemented by vitamins and nutraceuticals, including zinc, vitamins D and C, and quercetin. And they can guide patients at home, even the highest risk seniors, and avoid a dreaded outcome of hospitalization and death, said McCullough. Working with a large practice in the Plano, Frisco area north of Dallas, McCullough and his team administered this protocol to some 800 patients and demonstrated an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. Another practice led by the legendary Dr. Vladimir Zelenko in Monroe, New York, showed similar astonishing results. Independent physicians unaffiliated with the government or the universities that are so dependent on Dr. Fauci's good favor were discovering new COVID treatments by the day. Researchers treated 738 randomly selected Brazilian COVID-19 patients with another adjuvant, fluvoxamine, identified early in the pandemic for its potential to reduce cytokine storms. Another 733 received a placebo between January 20th and August 6th of 2021. The researchers tracked every patient receiving fluvoxamine during the trial for 28 days and found about a 30% reduction in events among those receiving fluvoxamine compared to those who did not. Like almost all the other remedies, it is cheap and proven safe by long use. Fluvoxamine costs about $4 per 10-day course. Fluvoxamine has been used since the 1990s, and its safety profile is well known. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are not necessary nor sufficient on their own. There are plenty of molecules that treat COVID, says McCullough. Even if hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin had become so politicized that no one wanted to allow these drugs to be used, we could use other drugs, anti-inflammatories, antihistamines, as well as anticoagulants, and actually stop the illness and, again, treat it to reduce hospitalization and death. When the pandemic started, most of the other medical practices in the Detroit area shut down, Dr. David Brownstein told me. I had a meeting with my staff and my six partners. I told them, we are going to stay open and treat COVID. They wanted to know how. I said, we've been treating viral diseases here for 25 years. COVID can't be any different. In all that time, our office has never lost a single patient to flu or flu-like illness. We treated people in their cars with oral vitamins A, C, and D, and iodine. We administered IV solution outside all winter with IV hydrogen peroxide and vitamin C. We'd have them put their butts out the car window and shot them up with intramuscular ozone. We nebulized them with hydrogen peroxide and Lugol's iodine. We only rarely used ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We treated 715 patients and had 10 hospitalizations and no deaths. Early treatment was the key. We weren't allowed to talk about it. The whole medical establishment was trying to shut down early treatment and silence all the doctors who talked about successes. A whole generation of doctors just stopped practicing medicine. When we talked about it, the whole cartel came for us. I've been in litigation with the medical board for a year. When we posted videos from some of our recovered patients, they went viral. One of the videos had a million views. FTC filed a motion against us, and we had to take everything down. In July 2020, Brownstein and his seven colleagues published a peer-reviewed article describing their stellar success with early treatment. FTC sent him a letter warning him to take it down. No one wanted Americans to know that you didn't have to die from COVID. It's 100% treatable, says Dr. Brownstein. We proved it. No one had to die. Meanwhile, adds Dr. Brownstein, we've seen lots of really bad vaccine side effects in our patients. We've had seven strokes, some ending in severe paralysis. We had three cases of pulmonary embolism, two blood clots, two cases of Graves' disease, and one death. Repurposed medicines, the record shows, could also have drastically reduced death among hospitalized patients. One of Dr. Corey's co-founders of FLCCC, 
Houston Memorial Medical Center's chief medical officer, Dr. Joe Verone, worked 400 days in a row, seeing between 20 to 30 patients a day. Using ivermectin and a cocktail of anti-inflammatories, steroids, and anticoagulants since spring 2020, Dr. Verone lowered hospital mortality among ICU COVID patients to about 4.1%, compared to well over 23% nationally. Even in the ICUs where patients were coming in undertreated, we were able to dramatically reduce mortality, says Dr. Corey. Almost anything you do in the nursing homes, basically any combination of the various components of these protocols, reduces mortalities by at least 60%, McCullough told me. A 2021 paper in Medical Hypotheses supports McCullough's claim. That study, by 12 physician co-authors, shows that diverse combinations of many of these and similar medications dramatically lower death rates in a variety of nursing homes. The study concludes that even the most modest early medical therapy combinations were associated with 60% reductions in mortality. Says Dr. McCullough, therapeutic nihilism was the real killer of America's seniors. McCullough's findings may be conservative. Early in the pandemic, two Spanish nursing homes simultaneously experimented with early treatment with cheap, available repurposed drugs and achieved 100% survival among infected residents and staff. Between March and April 2020, COVID-19 struck two elder care facilities in Yepes, Toledo, Spain. The mean age of residents in those locations was 85, and 48% were over 80 years old. Within three months, 100% of the residents at both locations had caught the virus. By the end of June, 100% of residents and half the workers were seropositive for COVID, meaning they had endured infection and recovered. None of them went to the hospital, and none died. None had adverse drug effects. Local doctors rapidly discovered early treatment with the same sort of remedies that McCullough was championing antihistamines, steroids, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, aspirin, nasal washes, bronchodilators, and blood thinners. In pooled data, 28% of the residents in similar nursing homes in the same region over the same time period died. That study supports the experience of frontline physicians that cheap, available, repurposed drugs can easily prevent hospitalizations and deaths. Dr. McCullough and 57 colleagues published a second study in December of 2020 in a dedicated issue of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. The article, Multifaceted, Highly Targeted Sequential Multidrug Treatment of Early Ambulatory High-Risk SARS-CoV-2 Infection, COVID-19, described a marvelous breadth of effective drugs that these physicians had by then developed. By collecting data from the vast network of doctors across the globe, they added dozens of new compounds to the arsenal, all proven effective against COVID-19. Dr. Corey told me that he was deeply troubled that the extremely successful efforts by scores of frontline doctors to develop repurposed medicines to treat COVID received no support from any government in the entire world, only hostility, much of it orchestrated by Dr. Fauci and the U.S. health agencies. The large universities that rely on hundreds of millions in annual funding from NIH were also antagonistic. We didn't have a single academic institution come up with a single protocol, said Dr. McCullough. They didn't even try. Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Duke, you name it. Not a single medical center set up even a tent to try to treat patients and prevent hospitalization and death. There wasn't an ounce of original research, though there is no fatality rate that can be reduced. And for people who are elderly and have pre-existing illness, he adds, as we know from Dr. Peter McCullough and his colleagues' work, there are miraculously effective medicines to treat this virus so that the fatality rates go down another 70 to 80 percent, which means there is no ground for emergency use whatsoever. That's a huge threat to the vaccine cartel and to remdesivir. It was only the independent doctors like Ryan Cole, who were not reliant on Dr. Fauci's largesse, and who threw themselves into hand-to-hand -hand combat against COVID-19, who discovered readily available treatment modes. We had hero doctors that really had to break with the academic ivory tower, says McCullough. Finally, a group of independent organizations, including the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, and America's Frontline Doctors, 
galvanized to organize the country into four national telemedicine services and three regional telemedicine services. Following Dr. Corey's explosive Senate testimony, thousands of doctors and frightened COVID patients began calling the hotlines for treatment. We took over healthcare, says McCullough. In numerous countries and regions around the world, repeated, striking, temporally associated reductions in both cases and deaths occurred very soon after either ivermectin was distributed or health ministry ivermectin recommendations were announced, said Dr. Corey. It could be argued that a similar association occurred in the U.S. Dr. Fauci and the industry propagandists later attributed the January decline in COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths to their vaccines, which began their rollout in mid-December 2020. However, even mainstream media doctors reluctantly acknowledged that the drop could not possibly be a vaccine effect. By February 1, only 25.2 million, or 7.6% of Americans, had received a single vaccine dose. The CDC acknowledges that there is no effect until many weeks after the second COVID jab. Tony Fauci's decision to deny early treatments undoubtedly prolonged and intensified the pandemic. McCullough points out that early treatment does not just prevent hospitalization. It quickly starves pandemics to death by stopping their spread. Early treatment reduces the infectivity period from 14 days to about four days, he explains. It also allows someone to stay in the home so they don't contaminate people outside the home. And then it has this remarkable effect in reducing the intensity and duration of symptoms so patients don't get so short of breath. They don't get into this panic where they feel they have to break containment and go to the hospital. Cullis says that those hospital trips are tender for pandemics, especially since at that point, the patient is at the height of infectivity with teeming viral loads. Every hospitalization in America, and there's been millions of them, has been a super spreader event. Sick patients contaminate their loved ones, paramedics, Uber drivers, people in the clinic and offices. It becomes a total mess. McCullough says that by treating COVID-19 at home, doctors actually can extinguish the pandemic. So this has been a story of American heroes. It's been a story of worldwide success. McCullough's group is now part of a worldwide network of frontline physicians using repurposed drugs to save lives around the globe. These doctors have built networks and information banks outside of the government agency and university hegemony, allowing doctors to actually practice the art of healing. Their network includes the Bird Medical Coalition in the UK and Treatment Domiciliare COVID-19 group in Italy, which conducts rallies to celebrate zero hospitalizations from this multi-drug approach. We have Panda in South Africa, the COVID Medical Network in Australia, and so on, says McCullough. Despite the various government agencies and the ivory tower medical institutions literally not lifting a finger, COVID-19 independent doctors and hero organizations kicked in. And to this day, we're in the middle of the Delta outbreak. Guess who's treating the Delta patients? It's again not the academic medical centers or the government or even the large group practices. They're not touching these patients. Once again, it is independent physicians. It's independent doctors who are actually compassionately reaching out and using what we call the precautionary principle. They're using their best medical judgment and scientific data to apply therapy now and to practice the art of healing. For any of our academic colleagues that have said, Dr. McCullough, we need to wait for large randomized trials. What I've always said is, listen, this is a mass casualty event. People are dying now. They're being hospitalized now. We can't wait for large randomized trials. We need to be doctors. We need to start healing people. Two, killing hydroxychloroquine. Most of my fellow Democrats understand that Dr. Fauci led an effort to deliberately derail America's access to life-saving drugs and medicines that might have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and dramatically shortened the pandemic. There is no other aspect of the COVID crisis that more clearly reveals the malicious intentions of a powerful vaccine cartel led by Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates to prolong the pandemic and amplify its mortal effects in order to promote their mischievous inoculations. From the outset, hydroxychloroquine, HCQ, and other therapeutics posed an existential threat to Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates' $48 billion COVID vaccine project, and particularly to their vanity drug remdesivir, in which Gates has a large stake. Under federal law, new vaccines and medicines cannot qualify for emergency use authorization, EUA, 
if any existing FDA-approved drug proves effective against the same malady. For FDA to issue an EUA, emergency use authorization, there must be no adequate, approved, and available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition. Thus, if any FDA-approved drug like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin proved effective against COVID, pharmaceutical companies would no longer be legally allowed to fast-track their billion-dollar vaccines to market under emergency use authorization. Instead, vaccines would have to endure the years-long delays that have always accompanied methodical safety and efficacy testing, and that would mean less profits, more uncertainty, longer runways to market, and a disappointing end to the lucrative COVID-19 vaccine gold rush. Dr. Fauci has invested $6 billion in taxpayer lucre in the Moderna vaccine alone. His agency is co-owner of the patent and stands to collect a fortune in royalties. At least four of Fauci's hand-picked deputies are in line to collect royalties of $150,000 a year based on Moderna's success, and that's on top of the salaries already paid by the American public. So there was good reason that very powerful potentates of the medical cartel were already targeting HCQ long before President Trump began his infamous romance with the malaria remedy. President Trump's endorsement of HCQ on March 19, 2020, hyper-politicized the debate and gave Dr. Fauci's defamation campaign against HCQ a soft landing among Democrats and the media. Trump's critics relegated any further claims of HCQ efficacy to the same anti-science waste bin as Trump's notorious recommendation for bleach to cure COVID and his denial of climate change. But HCQ had a long history of safe medical use that got lost in the politics and propaganda. HCQ before Dr. Fauci's smear campaign. Dr. Fauci's challenge to prove that HCQ is dangerous was daunting because hydroxychloroquine is a 65-year-old formula that regulators around the globe long ago approved as both safe and effective against a variety of illnesses. HCQ is an analog of the quinine found in the bark of the cinchona tree that George Washington used to protect his troops from malaria. For decades, WHO has listed HCQ as an essential medicine proven effective against a long list of ailments. It is a generally benign prescription medicine, far safer, according to the manufacturer's package inserts, than many popular over-the-counter drugs. Generations have used HCQ billions of times throughout the world, practically without restriction. During my many childhood trips to Africa, I took HCQ daily as a preventive against malaria, a ritual that millions of other African visitors and residents embrace. Long use has thoroughly established HCQ's safety and efficacy, such that most African countries authorize HCQ as an over-the-counter medication. Africans call the drug Sunday Sunday because millions of them take it religiously, once a week, as a malaria prophylaxis. It's probably not a coincidence that these nations enjoyed some of the world's lowest mortality rates from COVID. HCQ is the number one most used medication in India, the second most populous nation on the planet with 1.3 billion people. Prior to the COVID pandemic, HCQ and its progenitor, chloroquine, were freely available over the counter in most of the world, including France, Canada, Iran, Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, and many other countries. In the United States, the FDA has approved HCQ without limitation for 65 years, meaning that physicians can prescribe it for any off-label use. CDC's information sheet deems hydroxychloroquine safe for pregnant women, breastfeeding women, children, infants, elderly and immune-compromised patients, and healthy persons of all ages. The CDC sets no limits on the lengthy and indefinite use of hydroxychloroquine for the prevention of malaria. Many people in Africa and India take it for a lifetime. Since its recommended protocol as a remedy for COVID requires only one week's use, Dr. Fauci's sudden revelation that the drug is dangerous was specious at best. According to Dr. Peter McCullough, to date, there has not been a single credible report that the medication increases the risk of death in COVID-19 patients when prescribed by competent physicians who understand its safety profile. 
Okay, that's our next 10 pages. And that was, um, <laughs> I know you guys have a lot to say. I read this before and hearing it for the first time. Woosa, right? I'm closing my mic. Wanna you know, Pauline, it shows the level of control in a sense. And I'm going to touch on two topics that this guy spoke of earlier that, you know, interested me more so when he made the uh, drew the comparison or analogy and mentioned the two, I think it was nursing homes or something over, was it Spain? Where like 84, the average age is like 84 years old or something like that. But 100% of those uh, nursing homes had caught it. And it, they were treated with the common ordinary, I heard it was basically like over-the-counter drugs, you know, that um, was prescribed to them and they recovered. And then he went on to say that. Um, he said so much, but so I'm going to kind of like jump around to the main topic where he said this guy um, published, you know, this stuff on YouTube, right? And it was downloaded over 100,000 times. And then YouTube, like, after so many days, like eight days or two weeks or something, that they took it down. You know, that shows me, again, uh, well, it alludes to the level of control that, um, you know, these players have over the media. You know, and we look at it in essence, and, um, like, you know, we do draw a comparison to tobacco. And, we're, and it's alluding to it's all about their bread. It's all about making money at the expense of people's lives. You know what I'm saying? You look at uh, tobacco, um, the corporate giants who have been pushing it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really looking at it in it in totality. It doesn't really change a whole lot of the perspectives for me just to know that these are just like really, really evil and wicked people, you know, and it's, it's fascinating, man. But yeah, that's something that also stuck out to me. I'm listening to this thing, you know, um, and, and again, I'm glad you're playing it because it's giving me a lot of perspectives, a lot of questions, a lot of information I just didn't know. You know, um, I personally, I had a brother who died from COVID-19. He was out of the military and um, had pretty good insurance, according to him and his wife. And uh, prior to his death, when he caught it, he was complaining about he couldn't breathe. You know, he went to the hospital. This guy died in the hospital. They put him on their ventilator. However, I had a nephew and a whole host of friends and cousins that have caught COVID-19. These do, these guys never went to a hospital. They took, you know, the, the onion, I mean, not the onion, but the lemon, the water, you know, and just basic over-the-counter things. And these dudes today are standing in their paint. You know what I mean? They are here uh, functioning normally just by not um, – prescribing to, you know, taking the poke or going to the hospital, but just fighting it off with ordinary stuff that their mom and grandmothers have told them to take that has been passed down through the years. And, and again, they are here functioning pretty well, you know. So I look at how this guy was talking about their treating prior to the, the, the infamous spread of this, how they treated these people at these nursing homes with just ordinary stuff and 100% recovered from it, you know what I mean? Right. hear the, the numbers the, the numbers from others right it's it's like i feel like there's what we were told was happening and what was really happening were very two very different things 
You know what I mean? And so, you know, when when I heard of this thing, the Sunday Sunday, which is, you know, uh, Africans were taking this, you know, like literally like a Tylenol every week. And this is why they weren't, um, you know, experiencing COVID at a certain rate. And then hearing all these other countries, I go, are you kidding me? But that's not the story that they've been telling us here in the U.S. And that's, you know, I don't know what they're saying in other countries, but we know that even in Canada, they've been lied to. They, they, they still operate in lockdowns and so on and so forth. And it's just so unbelievable that, you know, we're almost two years into this thing and we're just finding out certain truths about what's happening here. Treatment drugs are working, but they just keep suppressing it and suppressing it and suppressing it. And I find it very, very frustrating that that that's happening. As towards that same end, such a conflict of interest that Fauci and people who work for him can actually make money off of the patents for these vaccines and other things. And yet they're supposed to be advising us and protecting our health. How can they make money? I, oh. Thus, if an FDA approved drug like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin proved to be effective against COVID, pharmaceutical companies would no longer be legally allowed to fast track their billion dollar vaccines to market under emergency use authorization. Instead, vaccines would have to endure the years long delays that have always accompanied methodical safety and efficacy testing, and that would mean less profits, more uncertainty, and longer runways to market, and a disappointing end to the lucrative COVID vaccine gold rush. Sweet. I go, are you freaking kidding me? Why did they launch it? If it was this protocol, if they had a, a alternate resources, that's... Like, wow, Claudia. That's what the money. people to uh, these doctors to to do these protocols. But secondly, they wanted to wait. But here's the next kicker. They were supposed to be in clinical trial until 2023, but they stopped the trial after six months. And now for any of you who have copies, um, I'll put it up later because I want you guys to, to, to do the link at the top. They've already shown that there have been significant side effects of the, the, the Pfizer um uh, uh, clinical trials, as well as um, over a thousand deaths that they've reported. I know that in the system there are others and there are more people, but from their documentation, the number of deaths is well a little over a thousand, a little over um, 1,200, which is ridiculous. Swine flu, one person died and, and he, he actually died at, at, at a military base and they shut the entire thing down and Fauci's boss lost his job. He had to resign. And that's how Fauci came to rise. You'll see that and just, you'll hear that in just a minute. It's unbelievable. Efficacy against coronavirus with early intervention HCQ protocol. Some 200 peer reviewed studies by government and independent researchers deem HCQ safe and effective against coronavirus, especially when taken prophylactically or when taken in the initial stages of illness along with zinc and zithromax. In 32 studies of early outpatient treatment of COVID using hydroxychloroquine, 31 of the studies showed benefit, and only one study showed harm. The study showing harm resulted from a single patient in the treatment group requiring hospitalization. 
When all the studies are collected together, despite having different outcome measures, the average benefit is 64%. This means that subjects who received hydroxychloroquine were only 36% as likely to reach the negative outcomes as subjects in the control groups. The scientific literature first suggested that HCQ or CQ might be effective treatments for coronavirus in 2004. In that era, following an outbreak, Chinese and Western governments were pouring millions of dollars into an effort to identify existing, aka repurposed medicines that were effective against coronaviruses. With HCQ, they had stumbled across the Holy Grail. In 2004, Belgian researchers found that chloroquine was effective at viral killing at doses equivalent to those used to treat malaria, i.e. doses that are safe. A CDC study published in 2005 in the Virology Journal, Chloroquine is a potent inhibitor of SARS coronavirus infection and spread, demonstrated that CQ quickly eliminated coronavirus in primate cell culture during the SARS outbreak. That study concludes, we report that chloroquine has strong antiviral effects on SARS coronavirus infection of primate cells, both before or after exposure to the virus, suggesting both prophylactic and therapeutic advantage. This conclusion was particularly threatening to vaccine makers, since it implies that chloroquine functions both as a preventive vaccine as well as a cure for SARS coronavirus. Common sense would presume it to be effective against other coronavirus strains. Worse still for Dr. Fauci and his vaccine-making friends, a NIAID study and a Dutch paper, both in 2014, confirmed chloroquine was effective against MERS, still another coronavirus. In response to their studies, physicians worldwide discovered early in the pandemic that they could successfully treat high-risk COVID-19 patients as outpatients within the first five to seven days of the onset of symptoms with a chloroquine drug alone or with a cocktail consisting of hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and azithromycin, or doxycycline. Multiple scholarly contributions to the literature quickly confirmed the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and hydroxychloroquine-based combination treatment when administered within days of COVID symptoms. Studies confirming this occurred in China, France, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Italy, India, New York City, upstate New York, Michigan, and Brazil. HCQ's first prominent champion was Dr. Didier Raoult, the iconic French infectious disease professor, who has published more than 2,700 papers and is famous for having discovered 100 microorganisms, including the pathogen that causes Whipple's disease. On March 17, 2020, Dr. Raoult provided a preliminary report on 36 patients treated successfully with hydroxychloroquine and sometimes azithromycin at his institution in Marseille. In April, Dr. Vladimir Zev Zelenko, MD, an upstate New York physician and early HCQ adopter, reproduced Dr. Didier Raoult's startling successes by dramatically reducing expected mortalities among 800 patients Zelenko treated with the HCQ cocktail. By late April of 2020, U.S. doctors were widely prescribing HCQ to patients and family members, reporting outstanding results and taking it themselves prophylactically. In May 2020, Dr. Harvey Reich, MD, PhD, published the most comprehensive study to date on HCQ's efficacy against COVID. Reich is Yale University's super eminent professor of epidemiology, an illustrious world authority on the analysis of aggregate clinical data. Dr. Reich concluded that evidence is unequivocal for early and safe use of the HCQ cocktail. Dr. Reich published his work, a meta-analysis reviewing five outpatient studies, in affiliation with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the American Journal of Epidemiology under the urgent title, Early Outpatient Treatment of Symptomatic High-Risk COVID-19 Patients That Should Be Ramped Up Immediately as Key to Pandemic Crisis. He further demonstrated with specificity how HCQ's critics, largely funded by Bill Gates and Dr. Tony Fauci, had misinterpreted, misstated, and misreported negative results by employing faulty protocols, most of which showed HCQ efficacy administered without zinc and zithromax, which were known to be helpful. But their main trick for ensuring the protocols failed was to wait until late in the disease process before administering HCQ when it is known to be ineffective. 
Dr. Reich noted that evidence against HCQ used late in the course of the disease is irrelevant. While acknowledging that Dr. Didier Raoult's powerful French studies favoring HCQ were not randomized, Reich argued that the results were nevertheless so stunning as to far outweigh that deficit. The first study of HCQ plus AZ showed a 50-fold benefit of HCQ plus AZ versus standard of care. This is such an enormous difference that it cannot be ignored despite lack of randomization. Reich has pointed out that the supposed need for randomized placebo-controlled trials is a shibboleth. In 2014, the Cochrane collaboration proved in a landmark meta-analysis of 10,000 studies that observational studies of the kind produced by Dr. Didier Raoult are equal in predictive ability to randomized placebo-controlled trials. Furthermore, Reich observed that it is highly unethical to deny patients promising medications during a pandemic, particularly those which, like HCQ, have long-standing safety records. So, against all that I've shared here, Dr. Fauci offered up one answer. Hydroxychloroquine should not be used because we don't understand the mechanism it uses to defeat COVID. Another shibboleth transparently invoked to defeat common sense. Regulators do not understand the mechanism of action of many drugs, but they nonetheless license those that are effective and safe. The fact is that we know more about how HCQ beats COVID than we know about the actions of many other medicines, including, notably, Dr. Fauci's darlings, mRNA vaccines, and remdesivir. Furthermore, an August 2020 paper from Baylor University by Dr. Peter McCullough et al. described mechanisms by which the components of the HCQ cocktail exert antiviral effects. McCullough shows that the efficacy of the HCQ cocktail is based on the pharmacology of the hydroxychloroquine ionophore acting as the gun and zinc as the bullet while azithromycin potentiates the antiviral effect. An even more expansive September 30th, 2020 meta-review summarizes more recent research, concluding that all the studies on early administration of HCQ within a week following infection demonstrate efficacy, while studies of HCQ administered later in the illness show mixed results. In March 2020, Nature published a paper demonstrating the specific mechanisms in tissue culture by which chloroquine stops viral reproduction. In April 2020, a team of Chinese scientists published a preprint of a 62-patient placebo-controlled trial of hydroxychloroquine, resulting in demonstrably improved time to recovery and less progression to severe disease in the treated group. In May 2020, a Chinese expert consensus group recommended doctors use chloroquine routinely for mild, moderate, and severe cases of COVID-19 pneumonia. A national study in Finland in May 2021 showed a five times efficacy, and national studies in Canada and Saudi Arabia showed three times efficacy. I'll stop gilding the lily here and ask the listener, was hydroxychloroquine some crazy baseless idea or ought regulators to have honestly investigated it as a potential remedy during a raging pandemic? Pharma's war on HCQ. The prospect of an existing therapeutic drug with an expired patent that could outperform any vaccine in the war against COVID posed a momentous threat to the pharmaceutical cartel. Among the features pharma companies most detest is low cost and HCQ is about $10 per course. Compare that to more than $3,000 per course for Dr. Fauci's beloved remdesivir. No surprise, pharmaceutical interests launched their multinational preemptive crusade to restrict and discredit HCQ starting way back in January 2020, months before the WHO declared a pandemic and even longer before President Trump's controversial March 19th endorsement. On January 13th, when rumors of one who COVID-19 began to circulate, the French government took the bizarre, inexplicable, unprecedented, and highly suspicious step of reassigning HCQ from an over-the-counter to a prescription medicine. Without citing any studies, French health officials quietly changed the status of HCQ to list two poisonous substance and banned its over-the-counter sales. This absolutely remarkable coincidence repeated itself a few weeks later when 
Canadian health officials did the exact same thing, quietly removing the drug from pharmacy shelves. A physician from Zambia reported to Dr. Harvey Reich that in some villages and cities, organized groups of buyers emptied drugstores at HCQ and then burned the medication in bonfires outside the towns. South Africa destroyed two tons of life-saving hydroxychloroquine in late 2020, supposedly due to violation of an import regulation. The U.S. government in 2021 ordered the destruction of more than a thousand pounds of HCQ because it was improperly imported. The feds are insisting that all of it be destroyed and not be used to save a single life anywhere in the world, said a lawyer seeking to resist the senseless order. By March, frontline doctors around the world were spontaneously reporting miraculous results following early treatment with HCQ, and this prompted growing anxiety for pharma. On March 13th, a Michigan doctor and trader, Dr. James Todaro, MD, tweeted his review of HCQ as an effective COVID treatment, including a link to a public Google Doc. Google quietly scrubbed Dr. Todaro's memo. This was six days before the president endorsed HCQ. Google apparently didn't want users to think Todaro's message was missing. Rather, the big tech platform wanted the public to believe that Todaro's memo never even existed. Suppressing information that challenges vaccine industry profits. Google's parent also owns several companies. The tech company in COVID vaccine has lucrative partners. $715 million partnership with Glad. Hold on. I, I see it. They're, they're, they're putting it in the matrix, saying it's not a strong signal. They're ridiculous. Hold on. So Smith Klein, Verily also owns a business that tests for COVID infection. Give me a second. It's not the only okay. social media platform to ban content that contradicts the official HCQ narrative. Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, YouTube, MailChimp, and virtually every other big tech platform began scrubbing information demonstrating HCQ's efficacy, replacing it with industry propaganda generated by one of the Dr. Fauci Gates-controlled public health agencies, HHS, NIH, and WHO. When President Trump later suggested that Dr. Fauci was not being truthful about hydroxychloroquine, social media responded by removing his posts. It was a March 2020 news conference where Dr. Fauci launched his concerted attack on HCQ. Asked whether HCQ might be used as a prophylaxis for COVID, he shouted back, the answer is no, and the evidence that you're talking about is anecdotal evidence. His reliable allies at the New York Times then launched a campaign to defame Dr. Raoult. In the midst of a deadly pandemic, somebody very powerful wanted a medication that had been available over-the-counter for decades and known to be effective against coronaviruses to be suddenly but silently pulled from the shelves, from Canada to Zambia. In March, at HHS's request, several large pharmaceutical companies, Novartis, Bayer, Sanofi, and others, donated their inventory, a total of 63 million doses of hydroxychloroquine and 2 million of chloroquine, to the Strategic National Stockpile, managed by BARDA, an agency under the DHHS Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. BARDA's director, Dr. Rick Bright, later claimed the chloroquine drugs were deadly and he needed to protect the American public from them. Bright colluded with FDA to restrict use of the donated pills to hospitalized patients. FDA publicized the authorization using language that led most physicians to believe that prescribing the drug for any purpose was off-limits. But at the beginning of June, based on clinical trials that intentionally gave unreasonably high doses to hospitalized patients and failed to start the drug until too late, FDA took the unprecedented step of revoking HCQ's emergency authorization, rendering that enormous stockpile of valuable pills off-limits to Americans, while conveniently indemnifying the pharmaceutical companies for their inventory losses by allowing them a tax break for the donations. After widespread use of the drug for 65 years, without warning, FDA somehow felt the need to send out an alert on June 15th, 
2020 that HCQ is dangerous and that it required a level of monitoring only available at hospitals. In a bit of twisted logic, federal officials continued to encourage doctors to use the suddenly dangerous drug without restriction for lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Lyme, and malaria, just not for COVID. With the encouragement of Dr. Fauci and other HHS officials, many states simultaneously imposed restrictions on HCQ's use. The Fraudulent Industry Studies Prior to COVID-19, not a single study had provided evidence against the use of HCQ based on safety concerns. In response to the mounting tsunami that HCQ was safe and effective against COVID, Gates, Dr. Fauci, and their pharma allies deployed an army of industry-linked researchers to gin up contrived evidence of its dangers. By 2020, we shall see, Bill Gates exercised firm control over WHO and deployed the agency in his effort to discredit HCQ. Dr. Fauci, Bill Gates, and WHO financed a cadre of research mercenaries to concoct a series of nearly 20 studies, all employing fraudulent protocols deliberately designed to discredit HCQ as unsafe. Instead of using the standard treatment dose of 400 milligrams a day, the 17 WHO studies administered a borderline lethal daily dose, starting with 2,400 milligrams on day one and using 800 milligrams a day thereafter in a cynical, sinister, and literally homicidal crusade against HCQ. A team of BMGF operatives played a key role in devising and pushing through the exceptionally high dosing. They made sure that UK government recovery trials on 1,000 elderly patients in over a dozen British, Welsh, Irish, and Scottish hospitals, and the UN Solidarity Study of 3,500 patients in 400 hospitals in 35 countries, as well as additional sites in 13 countries, the REMAP COVID trial, all used those unprecedented and dangerous doses. This was a brassy enterprise to prove chloroquine dangerous. Sure enough, it proved that elderly patients can die from deadly overdoses. The purpose seemed very clearly to poison the patients and blame the deaths on HCQ, says Dr. Merrill Nass, a physician, medical historian, and biowarfare expert. In each of these two trials, solidarity and recovery, the hydroxychloroquine arm predictably had 10 to 20% more deaths than the control arm, the control arm being those patients lucky enough to receive standard supportive care. The UK government and Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, BMGF, jointly financed the recovery trial. The principal investigator, PI, Peter Horby, is a member of SAGE and is the chairman of NERVTAG, the new and emerging respiratory virus threats advisory group, both important committees that give the UK government advice on mitigating the pandemic. Horby's willingness to risk death of patients given toxic doses of HCQ fuels his subsequent rise in the UK medical hierarchy. Horby received a parade of extraordinary promotions after he orchestrated the mass poisonings of senior citizens. Queen Elizabeth recently knighted him. Gates's fingerprints are all over this sanguinary project. Despite suspiciously missing pages, the published minutes of WHO's part-secret March and April meetings show these medical alchemists establishing the lethal dosing of chloroquines, CQ and HCQ, for WHO's solidarity clinical trial. Only four participants attended the second WHO meeting to determine the dose of HCQ and CQ for the solidarity trial. One was Scott Miller, the BMGF's senior program officer. The report admits that the solidarity trial was using the highest dose of any recent trial. The report acknowledges that the BMGF developed a model of chloroquine penetration into tissues for malaria. BMGF's unique dosing model for the studies overestimated the amount of HQ necessary to achieve adequate lung tissue concentration. The WHO report confirms this model is, however, not validated. Hold on, I hear, I see it, making sure it goes away. Come on. They just really don't like us <laughs> doing this work. <laughs> Gates' deadly deception 
allowed FDA to wrongly declare that HCQ would be ineffective at safe levels. The minutes of that March 13, 2020 meeting suggest that BMGF knew the proper drug dosing and the need for early administration, yet their same researchers then participated in deliberately providing a potentially lethal dose, failing to dose by weight, missing the early window during which treatment was known to be effective, and giving the drugs to subjects who were already critically ill with comorbidities that made it more likely they would not tolerate the high dose. The solidarity trial design also departed from standard protocols by collecting no safety data, only whether the patient died or how many days they were hospitalized. Researchers collected no information on in-hospital complications. This strategy shielded the WHO from gathering information that could pin adverse reactions on the dose. The report of WHO's HCQ trial notes that WHO researchers did not retain any consent forms from the elderly patients they were overdosing, as the law in most countries requires, and makes the bewildering claim that some patients signed consent forms in retrospect, a stunning procedure that is unethical on its face. The WHO's researchers noted in their interim report on the trial, consent forms were signed and retained by the patients, an extremely unorthodox and suspicious procedure that suggests that there may have been no formal consents, but noted for record that consent was generally prospective, but could, where locally approved, be retrospective. One wonders if researchers notified their families of the high dose they were giving to their elderly parents and grandparents in locked COVID wards to which they denied family members access. The researchers evinced their guilty knowledge by concealing the research records of the doses they used in solidarity when they filed their trial reports. They also omitted dosing numbers from the report of WHO's meeting to determine the dose and omitted details of dosing from the WHO's solidarity trial registration. Another group of researchers using overdose concentrations of chloroquine published their study as a preprint in mid-April 2020 and quickly brought to print. In the preeminent journal JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, in this murder-for-hire scheme, Brazilian researchers used a dose of 1,200 milligrams a day for up to 10 days of CQ. According to a 2020 review of CQ and HCQ toxicity, as little as 2 to 3 grams of chloroquine may be fatal in adult patients, though the most commonly reported lethal dose in adults is 3 to 4 grams. Predictably, so many subjects died in the Brazilian high-dose study, 39%, 16 of 41 of the subjects who took this dose, that the researchers had to halt the study. The subject's mean age was only 55. Their medical records revealed EKG changes characteristic of CQ toxicity. The WHO and UK trial coordinators must have known this information, but they made no efforts to stop their own overdose trials nor to lower the doses. Although Gates did not fund the JAMA study directly, it's very possible he funded it indirectly through a nebulous list of funders. The senior and last author, Marcus Vinicius Guimarães Lacerda, has been a Gates-funded researcher on numerous projects. Further, the BMGF has funded multiple projects at the same medical foundation, where he and the first or lead author, Borba, work in Manaus, Brazil. Traditionally, the first listed author is generally seen as the senior and accountable author. Gates and his cabal used an arsenal of other deceptive gimmickry to assure that HCQ would appear not just deadly, but ineffective. Each of the studies that Gates funded failed to incorporate Zithromax and Zinc, important components of HCQ protocols. All of the Fauci, Gates, WHO, Solidarity, Recovery, and Remap COVID studies administered HCQ at late stages of COVID infection in contravention of the prevailing recommendations that deem HCQ effective only when doctors administer it early. Viewing this orchestrated sabotage with frustration, critics accused the Gates grantees of purposefully designing these studies at best to fail and at worst to murder. Brazilian prosecutors have accused the authors of the study of committing homicide by purposefully poisoning the elderly subjects in their study with high doses of chloroquine. All through 2020, Bill Gates and Fauci lashed out against HCQ every chance they got. During the early stages of the pandemic in March, 
Bill Gates penned an op-ed in the Washington Post. Besides calling for a complete lockdown in every state, along with accelerated testing and vaccine development, Gates warned that leaders can help by not stoking rumors or panic buying. Long before the drug hydroxychloroquine was approved as an emergency treatment for COVID-19, people started hoarding it, making it hard for lupus patients who need it to survive. This, of course, was a lie. The only ones hoarding HCQ were Dr. Fauci and Rick Bright, who had padlocked 63 million doses in the strategic national stockpile, more than enough to supply virtually every gerontology ward patient in America. Despite such efforts to create a shortage, none existed. HCQ is cheap, quick, and easy to manufacture. And since its patent has expired, dozens of manufacturers around the world can quickly ramp up production to meet escalating demand. In July, Gates endorsed censorship of HCQ recommendations after a video touting its efficacy against coronavirus accumulated tens of millions of views. Gates called the video outrageous and praised Facebook and YouTube for hastily removing it. He nevertheless complained, you can't find it directly on those services, but everybody's sending a link around because it's still out there on the internet. This Gates told Yahoo News revealed a persistent shortcoming of the platforms. Their ability to stop things before they become widespread, they probably should have improved that, Gates scolded. Asked by Bloomberg News in mid-August about how the Trump White House had promoted HCQ, despite its repeatedly being shown to be ineffective and in fact to cause heart problems in some patients, Gates happily responded, this is an age of science, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. In the test tube, hydroxychloroquine looked good. On the other hand, there are lots of good therapeutic drugs coming that are proven to work without the severe side effects. Gates went on to promote Gilead's remdesivir as the best alternative, despite its lackluster track record compared to HCQ. He didn't mention having a large stake in Gilead, which stood to make billions if Dr. Fauci was able to run remdesivir through the regulatory traps. Obsequious reporters consistently encouraged Gates to portray himself as an objective expert, and Gates used that interview to discredit HCQ and also me. His Bloomberg questioner opened the door with a typical softball. For years, people have said if anti-vaxxers had lived through a pandemic the way their grandparents did, they'd think differently. Gates replied, the two times I've been to the White House since 2016, I was told I had to go listen to anti-vaxxers like Robert Kennedy Jr. So yes, it's ironic that people are questioning vaccines and we're actually having to say, oh my God, how else can you get out of a tragic pandemic? If he had only asked me, I could have told him. Lancet Gate. It remains an enduring mystery. Just which powerful figures caused the world's two most prestigious scientific journals, The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, NEJM, to publish overtly fraudulent studies from a non-existent database owned by a previously unknown company. Anthony Fauci and the vaccine cartel celebrated The Lancet and NEJM papers on May 22, 2020, as the final nail in hydroxychloroquine's coffin. Both studies in these respected publications relied on data from the Surgisphere Corporation, an obscure Illinois-based medical education control hosting access to medical more than 100 hospitals. Founded 19 patients. Based on this study, the FDA withdrew its EUA recommendation on June 15, 2020. The WHO and UK suspended their hydroxychloroquine clinical trials on May 25th. Each resumed briefly, then stopped for good in June, declaring HCQ unhelpful. Three European nations immediately banned use of HCQ and others followed within weeks. That would normally have been the end of it, if not for the 200 independent scientists who quickly exposed the Lancet and NEJM studies as shockingly clumsy con jobs. The Surgisphere datasets that formed the foundation of the studies were so ridiculously erroneous that they could only have been a rank invention. Despite only one of many discrepancies, the number of reported deaths among patients taking hydroxychloroquine in one Australian hospital exceeded the total number of deaths for the entire country. An international brouhaha quickly revealed 
that the Surgisphere database did not exist, and soon enough, Surgisphere itself vanished from the internet. The University of Utah terminated the faculty appointment of one of the article's authors, Amit Patel. Surgisphere's founder, Sapan S. Desai, disappeared from his job at a Chicago hospital. Even the New York Times reported that more than 100 scientists and clinicians have questioned the authenticity of the database, as well as the study's integrity. Despite the barrage of astonished criticism, the Lancet held firm for two weeks before relenting to the remonstrances. Finally, three of the four Lancet co-authors requested the paper be retracted. Both the Lancet and NEJM finally withdrew their studies in shame. Somebody at the very pinnacle of the medical cartel had twisted arms, kicked groins, and stoved in kneecaps to force these periodicals to abandon their policies, shred their ethics, and spend down their centuries of hard-won credibility in a desperate bid to torpedo HCQ. To date, neither the authors nor the journals have explained who induced them to co-author and publish the most momentous fraud in the history of scientific publishing. The headline of a comprehensive expose in The Guardian expressed the global shock among the scientific community at the ranked corruption by scientific publishing's most formidable pillars. The Lancet has made one of the biggest retractions in modern history. How could this happen? The Guardian writers openly accused the Lancet of promoting fraud. The sheer number and magnitude of the things that went wrong or missing are too enormous to attribute to mere incompetence. The Guardian commented, What's incredible is that the editors of these esteemed journals still have a job. That is how utterly incredible the supposed data underlying the studies was. The capacity of their pharma overlords to strong-arm the world's top two medical journals, the NEJM and the Lancet, into condoning deadly research and to simultaneously publish blatantly fraudulent articles in the middle of a pandemic attests to the cartel's breathtaking power and ruthlessness. It is no longer controversial to acknowledge that drug makers rigorously control medical publishing and that the Lancet, NEJM, and JAMA are utterly corrupted instruments of pharma. The Lancet editor Richard Horton confirms journals have devolved into information laundering operations for the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Marcia Angel, who served as an NEJM editor for 20 years, says journals are primarily a marketing machine. Pharma, she says, has co-opted every institution that might stand in its way. All righty, that's on those elderly people. I remember that time when we went into lockdown here and it was so severe because when your family members got sick and a lot of people that had their um, relatives, elderly relatives in care homes were desperately trying to get them out and get them in, get them back home. And one lady got arrested trying to get her mother back home and they forced her mother back. And so they completely stopped people from being able to see their elderly relatives. And these poor old people were stuck in these homes and nobody could go near them. And they could do anything they wanted with them, like literally anything they wanted with them. It was so harsh. It was so heartbreaking. And it doesn't surprise me that they could get away with doing these experiments. It's, it's just horrific. Overdose these people. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking because, again, it's like we knew things were wrong. We knew things were happening. But to the extent that they were happening, no. Uh, doses over there. And you, you heard about the, the tons that were destroyed. Didn't want to help people. Wasn't about helping people. It was never about helping people. And then for all of them to put their stockpiles in BARDA, BARDA and, and, and Fauci are like hand in hand. That's a biomedical advanced research department. And BARDA and, um, and Fauci truly are.
to keep case fatalities high. Referring to the Lancet Surgisphere study during a May 27th CNN interview, Dr. Fauci stated on CNN about hydroxychloroquine, the scientific data is really quite evident now about the lack of efficacy. And even after the scandal lay exposed and the journals retracted their articles, Dr. Fauci let his lie stand. Instead of launching an investigation of this momentous and enormously consequential fraud by the world's two leading medical journals and publicly apologizing, Dr. Fauci and the medical establishment simply ignored the wrongful conduct and persevered in their plan to deny global populations access to life-saving HCQ. The historic journal retractions went practically unnoticed in the slavish, scientifically illiterate mainstream press, which persisted in fortifying the COVID propaganda. Headlines continue to blame HCQ for the deaths instead of the deliberately treacherous researchers who gave sick, elderly, and compromised patients toxic drug dosages. And most remarkable of all, the FDA made no effort to change the recommendation it made against HCQ. Other countries persisted in demonizing the life-saving drug. Once the FDA approves a prescription medication, federal laws allow any U.S. physician to prescribe the duly approved drug for any reason. 21% of all prescriptions written by American doctors exercising their medical judgment are for off-label uses. Even after the FDA withdrew its emergency use authorization and posted the fraudulent warning on its website, many frontline doctors across the country continued to prescribe and report strong benefits with appropriate doses of HCQ. In response, Dr. Fauci took even more unprecedented steps to derail doctors from prescribing HCQ. In March, while people were dying at the rate of 10,000 patients a week, Dr. Fauci declared that hydroxychloroquine should only be used as part of a clinical trial. For the first time in American history, a government official was overruling the medical judgment of thousands of treating physicians and ordering doctors to stop practicing medicine as they saw fit. Boldly and relentlessly, Dr. Fauci kept declaring that the overwhelming evidence of properly conducted randomized clinical trials indicate no therapeutic efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. Dr. Fauci failed to disclose that none of the trials he had used as the basis for that pronouncement involved medication given in the first five to seven days after onset of symptoms. Instead, all of those randomized controlled trials targeted patients who were already sick enough to be hospitalized. People wanting to be treated in that first critical week of illness and avoid being hospitalized were basically out of luck as Dr. Fauci moved to foreclose patients from receiving the life-saving remedy during the treatment window when science and previous experience showed it to be effective. On July 2nd, following the humiliating journal retractions, Detroit's Henry Ford Health System published a peer-reviewed study showing that hydroxychloroquine significantly cut death rates even in mid to late COVID cases and without any heart-related side effects. Fauci leapt to the barricades to rescue his vaccine enterprise. On July 30th, he testified before Congress that the Michigan results were flawed. The FDA revocation of the EUA and Dr. Fauci's withering response to the Michigan trial provided cover for 33 governors whose states moved to restrict prescribing or dispensing of HCQ. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo drove up record death counts by ordering that physicians prescribe HCQ only for hospitalized patients. In Nevada, Governor Stephen Sisolak prohibited both prescribing and dispensing chloroquine drugs for COVID-19. State medical licensing boards threatened to bring unprofessional conduct charges against non-complying doctors, a threat to their license, and to sanction doctors if they prescribed the drug. Most pharmacists were afraid to dispense HCQ, and on June 15th, state pharmacy boards in Arizona, Arkansas, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, New York, Oregon, and Rhode Island began refusing orders from physicians and retailers. Hospitals commanded doctors to cease treating their patients with HCQ beginning June 15, 2020. The NIAID halted a clinical trial of the drug in outpatients in June 2020, only a month after it started, having enrolled only 20 of the planned 2,000 enrollees. The FDA blocked access to the millions of doses of HCQ and CQ 
that Sanofi and other drug makers had donated to the strategic national stockpile with appropriate tax benefits. Sanofi announced it would no longer supply the drug for use treating COVID. Dr. Fauci and his HHS cronies decreed that the medication rot in warehouses while Americans unnecessarily sickened and died from COVID-19. On June 17th, the WHO, for which Mr. Gates is the largest funder after the U.S., and over which Mr. Gates and Dr. Fauci exercised tight control, called for the halt of HCQ trials in hundreds of hospitals across the world. WHO Chief Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus ordered nations to stop using HCQ and CQ. Portugal, France, Italy, and Belgium banned HCQ for COVID-19 treatment. Foreign experiences. In compliance with the WHO recommendation, Switzerland banned the use of HCQ. However, about two weeks into the ban, Switzerland's death rates tripled for about 15 days until Switzerland reintroduced HCQ. COVID deaths then fell back to their baseline. Switzerland's natural experiment had provided yet another potent argument for HCQ. Similarly, Panamanian physician and government advisor Sanchez Cardenas notes that when Panama banned HCQ, deaths shot up until the government relented, at which point deaths dropped back to baseline. Seven months into the pandemic, nations that widely used HCQ and made it readily available to their citizens demonstrated overwhelming evidence that HCQ was obliterating COVID-19. A June 2, 2020 court filing supporting the use of HCQ for COVID included an Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS, comparison of national death rates among countries with varying policies governing access to HCQ. Many countries with underdeveloped healthcare systems were using HCQ early and achieving far lower mortalities than in the United States, where HHS and the FDA impede access to HCQ. AAPS General Counsel Andrew Schlafly observed that citizens of the Philippines, Poland, Israel, and Turkey all have greater access to HCQ than American citizens do, and they have superior morbidity outcomes. He added, in Venezuela, HCQ is available over the counter without a prescription, while in the United States, pharmacists are prevented from filling prescriptions for HCQ. Other foreign studies support strong claims for HCQ. A study by NOVA demonstrated that nations using HCQ have death rates 80% lower than those that banned it. A meta-review of 58 peer-reviewed observational studies by physician researchers in Spain, Italy, France, and Saudi Arabia found that hydroxychloroquine dramatically reduced mortality from COVID, while additional articles by doctors in Turkey, Canada, and the U.S., found that HCQ's cardiac toxicity is negligible. Furthermore, mortality and morbidity data from over six dozen nations indicate a strong relationship between access to HCQ and COVID-19 death rates. While such a relationship does not prove cause-effect, it would be lunacy to simply ignore the reality and assume no relationship. Country by country, data consistently links broader access to HCQ to lower mortality. The very poorest countries, if they used HCQ, had far lower case fatality rates than wealthy countries than did not. Even impoverished African nations, where experts like Bill Gates predicted the highest death rates, had drastically lower mortalities than in nations that banned HCQ. Senegal and Nigeria, for example, both used hydroxychloroquine and had COVID fatality rates that were significantly lower than those experienced in the United States. Similarly, despite the fact that hygiene in those countries is often far inferior, in Ethiopia, Mozambique, Niger, Congo, and Ivory Coast, there are far fewer per capita deaths than in the U.S. In those nations, Death rates vary between 8 and 47.2 deaths per million inhabitants as of September 24, 2021. In contrast, Western countries that denied access to HCQ experienced numbers of coronavirus deaths per million inhabitants between 220 per million in Holland, 2,000 per million in the U.S., and 850 deaths per million in Belgium. Dr. Merrill Nass observed, if people in these malaria countries would boost their immune system with zinc, vitamin C, and vitamin D, 
the coronavirus death toll would even further decrease. Similarly, Bangladesh CFR, Senegal, Pakistan, Serbia, Nigeria, Turkey, and Ukraine all allow unrestricted use of HCQ and all have minuscule case fatality rates compared to the countries that ban HCQ. Wealthier democracies or countries with especially restrictive HCQ protocols, Ireland, Canada, Spain, the Netherlands, UK, Belgium, and France, are comparatively deadly environments. Andrew Schlafly observed that the mortality rate from COVID-19 in countries that allow access to HCQ is only one-tenth the mortality rate in countries where there is interference with this medication, such as the United States. In some areas of Central America, officials are even going door-to-door -to, -door to distribute HCQ. These countries have been successful in limiting the mortality from COVID-19 to only a fraction of what it is in wealthier countries. As the industry government cartel ramped up its campaign to keep HCQ from the masses, many doctors fought back. On July 23rd, Yale virologist Dr. Harvey Reich persisted, this time with a Newsweek article titled, The Key to Defeating COVID-19 Already Exists. We Need to Start Using It. Dr. Reich beseeched the authorities. HCQ saves lives, and its use could quickly end the pandemic. By then, Dr. Reich had updated his rigorous analysis of the early treatment of COVID-19 with hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and azithromycin. He now cited 12 clinical studies, suggesting that the early administration of HCQ could lower death rates by 50%. In that case, COVID-19 would have a lower case fatality rate than the seasonal influenza. We would still have had a pandemic, Harvey Reich told me, but we wouldn't have had the carnage. Noting more than 50 HCQ studies, Dr. Merrill Nass in June 2020 supported Reich's calculation. If people were treated prophylactically with this drug, using only two tablets weekly, as is done in some areas and some occupational groups in India, there would probably be at least 50% fewer cases after exposure. Stopping the pandemic in its tracks seemed to be the last thing Tony Fauci wanted. Thanks to Dr. Fauci, most U.S. states had by then banned treatment with HCQ, including Dr. Nass's home state of Maine, which banned it for prophylaxis, but did allow it for acute treatment. Dr. Nass suggested that the acts to suppress the use of HCQ were carefully orchestrated, and that these events might have been planned to keep the pandemic going, to sell expensive drugs and vaccines to a captive population. In the same article by Dr. Merrill Nass, published on June 27, 2020, Nass, who has extensively studied HCQ, pointed out that with prophylactic treatment with HCQ at the onset of their illness, over 99% would quickly resolve the infection, avoiding progression to the late-stage disease characterized by cytokine storm, thrombophilia, and organ failure. Despite claims to the contrary, this treatment is very safe, yet outpatient treatment is banned in the United States. Beginning June 27, 2020, Dr. Nass began a list of deceptive strategies that the Fauci Pharma Gates cartel used to control the narrative on hydroxychloroquine and deny Americans access to this effective remedy. The list has grown to 58 separate strategies. It is remarkable, she observed, how a large series of events taking place over the past months produced a unified message about hydroxychloroquine and produced similar policies about the drug in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Western Europe. The message is that generic, inexpensive hydroxychloroquine costing only a dollar to produce a full course, is dangerous. Dr. Fauci's hypocritical HCQ games. In his early AIDS days, Dr. Fauci had thrashed FDA as inhumane for demanding randomized double-blind placebo studies at the height of the pandemic. Now, here he was doing what he had condemned by blocking an effective treatment simply because it would compete with his expensive, patent-protected pharmaceutical remdesivir and vaccines. Dr. Fauci repeatedly insisted he would not allow HCQ for COVID-19 until its efficacy is proven in randomized, double-blind placebo studies. Dr. Reich calls this position a transparent sham. Dr. Fauci knew that neither industry nor its PIs would ever sponsor trials for a product with expired patents. 
It's noteworthy that while Dr. Fauci was bemoaning the lack of evidence of HCQ efficacy, he was refusing to commission his own trials to study early use of the hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and Zithromax remedy. Dr. Fauci himself, while spending $48 billion on zero-liability vaccines, at first refused to allocate anything for a randomized placebo study of HCQ. Even worse, he canceled two NIAID-sponsored trials of outpatient HCQ before completion. Dr. Fauci's hypocrisy about HCQ is evident to anyone who looks at his vacillating pronouncements throughout his long career. He has persistently insisted on double-blind, randomized placebo trials for medicines he dislikes, those that compete with his patented remedies, and airily fixed the NIAID study of remdesivir by changing the endpoints midstream to favor the drug. Dr. Fauci did not sponsor or encourage randomized trials for masks, lockdowns, or social distancing. And in the decades since he took over NIAID, he has never demanded randomized studies to confirm safety of the combined 69 vaccine doses currently on the childhood schedule. Every one of these vaccines is regarded as so unavoidably unsafe in the words of the 1986 Vaccine Act, NCBIA, and the Supreme Court that their manufacturers have demanded and received immunity from liability. During a 2013 USA Today interview, Dr. Fauci discussed remedies for another deadly coronavirus, MERS, which was causing an outbreak in Qatar and Saudi Arabia with over 30% mortality. Dr. Fauci then sang an entirely different tune than he is singing now about hydroxychloroquine. He suggested using a combination of the antiviral drugs ribavirin and interferon alpha-2b to treat MERS, even though the treatment had never been tested for safety or effectiveness against MERS in humans. In that circumstance, Dr. Fauci's NIAID had found that the treatment could stop MERS virus from reproducing in lab-grown cells. And oh yes, NIAID had patented it. We don't have to start designing new drugs, Dr. Fauci told journalists. The next time someone comes into an emergency room in Qatar or Saudi Arabia, you would have drugs that are readily available, and at least you would have some data. Even though the treatment hadn't gone through any trials, Dr. Fauci urged its compassionate use. If I were a physician in a hospital and someone were dying, rather than do nothing, you can see if these work. He played by all new rules when it came to COVID, forcing doctors to stand on the sidelines while patients died and prohibiting them from trying combinations of repurposed therapeutics to see if these work. Back in 2013, when Dr. Fauci endorsed ribavirin interferon for use against MERS, the two-punch hepatitis C remedy was, according to NIH, horrendously dangerous, with harms occurring in literally every patient who took the concoction. It causes hemolytic anemia chronic fatigue syndrome and a retinue of birth defects and or death of unborn children. Ribavirin is genotoxic, mutagenic, and a potential carcinogen. Nevertheless, in 2013, Dr. Fauci advocated the therapy despite the total lack of randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. In fact, the lack of any human data on using the combination against MERS. The COVID vaccines that qualified for emergency use authorization include novel platforms like mRNA and DNA with no known safety profile. Others use toxic adjuvants like squalene and aluminum or novel adjuvants with proven risks and potentially high rates of serious injuries. The two-month randomized clinical trials that justified the EUAs for COVID vaccines were far too brief to detect injuries with longer incubation periods. The vaccines are so risky that the insurance industry has refused to underwrite them, and the manufacturers refuse to produce them without blanket immunity from liability. Bill Gates, who is the principal investor in many of these new COVID vaccines, stipulated that their risk is so great that he would not provide them to people unless every government shielded him from lawsuits. Why then should HCQ be the only remedy required to cross this artificially high hurdle? After all, HCQ is less in need of randomized placebo studies than any of these vaccines or remdesivir. The safety of HCQ has been established over more than six decades. 
While vaccines are given to healthy people who face small risk of catching the disease, HCQ is administered to people who are actually sick, with virtually no risk to the patient. If a drug is safe and might work, if people are dying and there are no other good options, must we not try it? Dr. Fauci's on-again, off-again interest in drug safety is situational and self-interested. He claimed on July 31st about HCQ that, if that randomized placebo-controlled trial shows efficacy, I would be the first to admit it and to promote it, but I have not. So I just have to go with the data. I don't have any horse in the game one way or the other. I just look at the data. In fact, Dr. Fauci always had a stable of horses in the game. One of them is remdesivir. Even after the WHO's randomized placebo trial showed remdesivir ineffective against COVID. Furthermore, remdesivir has a catastrophic safety profile. His second nag is the Moderna vaccine, in which he invested years and six billion taxpayer dollars. He was thrilled to sponsor a human trial of a Moderna COVID vaccine, partly owned by his agency, before there were any safety and efficacy data from animal studies, which goes against FDA regulations. He then pushed for hundreds of millions of people to get EUA vaccines before the randomized placebo-controlled trials were complete. So much for Dr. Fauci's requirement for having high-quality evidence before risking use of drugs and vaccines in humans. Dr. Fauci's ethical flip-flopping about the need for rigid safety testing is particularly troubling, since he is championing a competitive product from which his agency and his employees expect a lucrative financial outcome. In the midst of a pandemic, with hundreds of thousands of deaths attributed to COVID and the economy in freefall, Dr. Fauci's suggestion that we withhold promising treatments that have an established safety profile from patients who have a potentially lethal disease pending the completion of randomized controlled clinical trials is highly manipulative and utterly unethical. It is not medically ethical to allow a COVID-19 patient to deteriorate in the early stages of the infection when there is an inexpensive, safe, and demonstrably effective HCQ treatment that CDC's and NIAID's own studies show blocks coronavirus replication. It would be equally unethical to enroll sick individuals in such studies, as Dr. Fauci proposes, in which half the infected patients would receive a placebo. Dr. Fauci's hypocrisy is particularly acute since the 21st Century Cures Act, which Congress passed in 2016, directs the FDA to accept precisely the type of real-world evidence reported by treating physicians like doctors Zelenko, Raoult, Riche, Corey, McCullough, Gold, and Chinese doctors in lieu of controlled clinical trials for licensing new products. The Cures Act recognizes that doctors and scientists can obtain very useful information when treating patients and observing the results outside of a formal trial setting. For Big Pharma, no milestone was more important during the current pandemic than neutralizing HCQ to prevent its widespread beneficial use. Dr. Fauci's shocking inconsistency and ethical breaches are congruent with his long history of promoting Big Pharma's more profitable patented products and using his power and influence to advance its agenda without regard to public health. Dr. Fauci's leadership role in this deadly scandal is consistent with his long history of discrediting therapies that compete with vaccines and other patented pharmaceutical products. Thanks to Dr. Fauci's strategic campaign, most Americans are still unable to obtain HCQ for early treatment of COVID-19. Even fewer Americans are able to access it as preventive medicine, and fewer still are aware of its benefits. His bizarre and inexplicable actions give credence to the suspicions held by many Americans that Dr. Fauci is working to prolong the epidemic in order to impose expensive patented drugs and vaccines on a captive population during a pandemic that has crashed the world economy, caused famines, and destroyed lives. While Dr. Fauci held us hostage waiting for what turned out to be imperfect vaccines, his own agency attributed over half a million deaths in America to COVID. Professor Reich believes that Dr. Fauci knowingly lied about the drug's hydroxychloroquine and used his influence to get the FDA to suppress it because he and other bureaucrats are in bed with other forces that are causing them to make decisions that are not based on the science and are killing Americans. Moreover, Dr. Reich specifically claims that Fauci and the FDA have caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans 
who could have been saved by HCQ. 3. Ivermectin By the summer of 2020, frontline physicians had discovered another COVID remedy that equaled HCQ in its staggering, life-saving efficacy. Five years earlier, two Merck scientists won the Nobel Prize for developing Ivermectin, IVM, a drug with unprecedented firepower against a wide range of human parasites, including roundworm, hookworm, river blindness, and lymphatic filariasis. That salute was the Nobel Committee's only award to an infectious disease medication in 60 years. FDA approved IVM as safe and effective for human use in 1996. WHO includes IVM, along with HCQ, on its inventory of essential medicines, its list of remedies so necessary, safe, efficacious, and affordable that WHO deems easy access to them as essential to satisfy the priority healthcare needs of the population. WHO has recommended administering ivermectin to entire populations to treat people who might have parasitic infections, meaning they consider it safe enough to give to people who haven't even been diagnosed. Millions of people have consumed billions of IVM doses as an anti-parasitic with minimal side effects. Ivermectin's package insert suggests that it is at least as safe as the most popular over-the-counter medications, including Tylenol and aspirin. Researchers at Japan's Kitasato Institute published a 2011 paper describing IVM in terms almost never used for any other drug. There are few drugs that can seriously lay claim to the title of wonder drug, penicillin and aspirin being two that have perhaps had greatest beneficial impact on the health and well-being of mankind. But ivermectin can also be considered alongside those worthy contenders based on its versatility, safety, and the beneficial impact that it has had and continues to have worldwide, especially on hundreds of millions of the world's poorest people. Three statues at the Carter Center, at the headquarters of the World Bank, and at the headquarters of the World Health Organization honor the development of ivermectin. Because since 2012, multiple in vitro studies have demonstrated that IVM inhibits the replication of a wide range of viruses. Nature magazine published a 2020 study reviewing 50 years of research, finding IVM highly effective against microorganisms, including some viruses, and reporting the results in animal studies, demonstrating antiviral effects of ivermectin in viruses such as Zika, Dengue, Yellow Fever, West Nile. An April 3, 2020 article entitled Lab Experiments Show Antiparasitic Drug Ivermectin Eliminates SARS-CoV-2 in Cells in 48 Hours by Australian researchers at Monash and Melbourne Universities and the Royal Melbourne Hospital first won IVM global attention as a potential treatment for COVID. The international press initially raved that this safe, inexpensive, well-known, and readily available drug had demolished SARS-CoV-2 in cell cultures. We found that even a single dose could essentially remove all viral RNA by 48 hours, and that even at 24 hours there was a really significant reduction in it, said lead researcher Dr. Kylie Wagstaff. Based on this study, on May 8, 2020, Peru, then under siege by a crushing COVID endemic, adopted ivermectin in its national guidelines. Peruvian doctors already knew the medicine, widely prescribed it for parasites, and health authorities knew it was safe and were comfortable with it, recalls Dr. Pierre Corey. COVID deaths dropped precipitously, by 14-fold, in the regions where the Peruvian government effectively distributed ivermectin. Reductions in deaths correlated with the extent of IVM distributions in all 25 states. In December 2020, Peru's new president, under pressure from WHO, severely restricted IVM availability, and COVID cases rebounded with deaths increasing 13-fold. In prophylaxis studies, Ivermectin repeatedly demonstrated far greater efficacy against COVID than vaccines at a fraction of the cost. In Argentina, for example, in the summer of 2020, Dr. Hector Carvalho conducted a randomized placebo-controlled trial of ivermectin as a preventative, finding 100% efficacy against COVID. Carvalho's team found no infections among the 788 workers who took weekly ivermectin prophylaxis, whereas 58% of the 407 controls had become ill with COVID-19. 
a later observational study from Bangladesh, also investigating ivermectin as a pre-exposure prophylaxis against COVID-19 among healthcare workers, found nearly as spectacular results. Only four of the 58 volunteers who took a minimal dose of ivermectin, 12 milligrams once per month for four months, developed mild COVID-19 symptoms, compared to 44 of the 60 healthcare workers who had declined the medication. Furthermore, a 2021 study suggested that a key biological mechanism of IVM, competitive binding with SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, was not specific to any coronavirus variant, and therefore, unlike vaccines, ivermectin would probably be effective against all future variants. As early as March 1, 2020, some frontline ICU and ER doctors began using ivermectin in combination with HCQ in early treatment protocols. Dr. Jean-Jacques Ryder, a Belgian physician working in Miami, began using the drug March 15th and immediately saw an uptick in recoveries. He published an excellent paper on June 9th. Meanwhile, two Western physicians using ivermectin in Bangladesh also reported a very high rate of recoveries, even among patients in later states of illness. Since March 2020, when doctors first used IVM against COVID-19, more than 20 randomized clinical trials, RCTs, have confirmed its miraculous efficacy against COVID for both inpatient and outpatient treatment. Six of seven meta-analyses of IVM treatment RCTs completed in 2021 found notable reductions in COVID-19 mortality. The relevant studies all showed significant benefit for high-risk outpatients, says the eminent Yale epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Reich. The only studies where its performance was anything short of stellar were those that investigated its efficacy in patients in very late stages of COVID. But even late-stage patients showed benefits in almost all studies, although somewhat less dramatic. According to a 2020 review by McCullough et al., numerous clinical studies, including peer-reviewed randomized controlled trials, showed large magnitude benefits of ivermectin in prophylaxis, early treatment, and also in late-stage disease management. Taken together, dozens of clinical trials that have now emerged from around the world are substantial enough to reliably assess clinical efficacy and infer a signal of benefit with acceptable safety. Early in January 2021, Dr. David Chesler, a geriatric specialist who had treated 191 infected patients since the previous spring at seven Virginia nursing homes, wrote to Dr. Fauci, claiming that he had achieved a mortality rate of 8% using ivermectin, half and 146,000 deaths less than the U.S. average in elder care facilities. In his letter to Dr. Fauci, Chesler attached a peer-reviewed case study documenting reports of similar efficacy from other countries. Neither Dr. Fauci nor anyone else from NIAID replied to Dr. Chesler's letter. The Annals of Dermatology and Venereology reported that in a French nursing home, all 69 residents, average age 90, and 52 staff survived a COVID-19 outbreak. As it turns out, they had all taken ivermectin for a scabies infestation. COVID decimated the surrounding community, but only seven elder home residents and four staff were affected, and all had mild illness. None required oxygen or hospitalization. Research suggests that ivermectin may work through as many as 20 separate mechanisms. Among them, ivermectin functions as an ionophore, facilitating transfer of zinc into the cells, which inhibits viral replication. Ivermectin stops replication of COVID-19, seasonal flu, and many other viruses through this and other mechanisms. For example, a March 2021 study by Chudery et al. found that ivermectin was found as a blocker of viral replicase, protease, and human TMPRSS2, which could be the biophysical basis behind its antiviral efficiency. The drug also reduces inflammation via multiple pathways, thereby protecting against organ damage. Ivermectin furthermore impairs the spike protein's ability to attach to the ACE2 receptor on human cell membranes, preventing viral entry. Moreover, the drug prevents blood clots through binding to spike protein and also deters the spike protein from binding to CD147 on red blood cells, which would otherwise trigger clumping. 
When patients take IVM before exposure, the drug prevents infection, which halts onward transmission and helps protect the entire community. In March 2021, a published study by Peter McCullough and 57 other frontline physicians from multiple countries found that our early ambulatory treatment regimen was associated with estimated 87.6% and 74.9% reductions in hospitalization and death. Many other studies echo Dr. McCullough's results. The average reduction in mortality based on 18 trials is 75%, according to a January 2021 meta-analysis presentation to the NIH COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines Panel. A WHO-sponsored meta-review of 11 studies likewise suggests ivermectin can reduce COVID-19 mortality by as much as 83%. On average, used prophylactically, ivermectin prevented 86% of the adverse outcomes. Over all these studies, ivermectin protected six of every seven people who used it to prevent COVID. And of 29 studies of early treatment of COVID using ivermectin, the average benefit was 66%. Graphs and tables reflecting the data discussed here can be found on the IVMMETA.org website. They are part of a much larger website that has compiled all completed, validated studies for each of 27 different treatments for COVID-19 at c19study.com. A January 2021 study in The Lancet found that ivermectin dramatically reduced the intensity and duration of symptoms and viral loading. In March 2020, Dr. Paul Merrick, Chief of Intensive Care Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School, began posting treatment guidelines for the care of COVID patients. Dr. Merrick, one of the best-known and well-published professors of intensive care medicine, recruited a team of the most highly respected and most published leading ICU physicians from across the globe to systematically research all possible approaches to this new virus. Soon, his organization, Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, FLCCC, created a website and posted their first treatment protocols in mid-April 2020. By November 2020, the FLCCC doctors felt there was enough evidence to add ivermectin to their protocols. The data show the ability of the drug ivermectin to prevent COVID-19, to keep those with early symptoms from progressing to the hyperinflammatory phase of the disease, and even to help critically ill patients recover. Peer reviewers green-lighted the clinical and scientific rationale for FLCCC's hospital protocols, and the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine published them in mid-December 2020. FLCCC also published on its website a one-page summary, regularly updated, of the clinical trial evidence for ivermectin. Okay, that's our next 10 pages. So we've covered like well over 50 pages at this point. So let's do a summary and take this back again up tomorrow because I told you this information was heavy. It's like a lot. And when you just sit there and you're like, how do they have all this darn data to prove that all these other treatments work and it, it gets rid of the um, anti, it's anti-inflammatory. It doesn't, um, it, people heal like within a, um, a couple of days and they, they, you know, they go back to their lives and we've got a whole industry surrounded in ensuring that nobody ever got that information and that doctors weren't allowed to use it. And literally I've seen with my own eyes, from a, 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 a professional, the documentation that was given to them where they were not allowed to release um, as people in the pharmacy this ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, so I know it to be true. ...stands how to at least download a MetaMask app and have it on their phone or have the integration on their actual web browser. That's probably the thing that's going to open up the most um, education for people because you know, anybody can understand downloading something and coming into Clubhouse, you know, and I think on ramping into what is an NFT and actually feeling, oh, here's an NFT and oh, now it's actually in my wallet and I can see it 
Um, and it's something that I don't necessarily have to sell, but I can. And it's not something that has to really do anything but stay there. I don't have to feel intimidated by it. Uh, it's been a nice uh, on-ramp for people. So if you are able to connect with me or, or, or at any time in the future, um, we can uh, work with you with some graphic artists to actually create that PO app for you and your brand um, and have everybody, you know, who's following your your, your cigar brand who wants to actually figure out how to get into NFTs or how to be a part of your brand. I just think that having a, a digital insignia or having some type of graphic, it can be a motion graphic even, of, of what you're doing with your brand that we can give them for free. It won't, it won't cost anything. And, and they can actually feel a part of your distributed uh, company. That's something we can. I would love that because I was thinking as, as to, you know, doing a pro app for least what I do now, and it's going to sound a little crazy. <laughs> so I came up with this concept called an all you can smoke cigar buffet, which I, I know if you don't smoke, you're like, that's disgusting. And, and maybe it is, but uh, you know, it's Vegas who doesn't like buffet. So whenever we sell a buffet, I would just handwrite like a little, you know, a, a, a little uh, name tag that said like, I'm doing the, the, the uh, you know, we had some printed up, but then we put their name in there. Um, I'm, I'm doing the, the Vato Cigars All You Can Smoke Cigar Buffet. And people be like, oh, what's that? You know, because you're sitting around a crafts table smoking unlimited cigars and people are like, where'd you get that? So I would love to do it as a PO app where it's like, you know, if, if, if you get the buffet, but I, but I like the fact that we can even go further, whether it's if you're just a fan of the brand, you get a PO app. Or if you're at one of our special events in, in, in Vegas, whether it's our cigar crawl or, you know, anything like that, you get a PO app and would there be different PO apps for different events or is it absolutely like those models have? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You can make a PO app for literally anything, <laughs> literally anything. But you know, if, if James wanted to, you know, create a PO app, what, one of the ways that we do it just, just to give everybody an understanding what a PO app is. If, if you don't know, it's a proof of attendance protocol. So it, it, it works um, in, in situations like into the PO app. And that's one of the things that we're working with them now yeah, to give it cool. poets. Yeah, we give poets different different functionalities now. So, um, so yes, definitely we can talk about that. We 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 love to work with you. Um, there's so many artists, so many, so many graphic artists that are so dope that would love to just you know hack along. And, yeah. If you're really specific about who you're aligned with, location wise, you might even want to uh, explore augmented reality for people who are literally on the ground that can go and see what you have um, planted, like seeds or little giveaway things, whatever that you can only see with like maybe augmented reality and your phone. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, um, you guys are really smart. Um, just real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to go help somebody with their business uh, and I'll be right. Who was, who was just speaking? I needed something in the middle to just kind of wrap it all together. Yeah. Whose art did you put in it? Um, so right now it just has uh, art that other people have done for Naughty by Nature and um, some like regular uh, shots from their career. Uh, but it will be like there's two, there's four branches of the the gallery, and the two that are empty right now will be for the NFTs. So uh, the team has been working on an MRE or an SDK, something that will uh, allow you to click on it um, and, and get information from it. 
And then one last final question really quick. Uh, there were two new pieces of technology that I had not seen used previously in Allspace. Um, they may have been there, but I have not seen them. One of them was um, the pictures on the wall, uh, the slideshows that were also portals. Um, that was cool. And then also uh, the, the uh, T-shirts um, where you could actually take a T-shirt and put it on your avatar. Is that new and was that something that you created or did someone else in the space create? So that was Nira. Uh, Nira is one of the master uh, mixed reality extension uh, creators in the space. Um, and she was on the team as well. And so uh, Nira had made that slideshow for the community. And so you could actually go around to any world in alt space and take a picture in that world and then on the website, you could hashtag it um, and share it with the community. And then it will go into that hashtag thread for that slideshow. Um, and so because you took it, that picture in world, it will have the teleportation like link attached to it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and the, <laughs> yeah, the wearables uh, were super dope. I mean, she made, you know, that whole uh, booth, you know, just for them. Um, that was a custom memory for them. That's amazing. Uh, Lachey, I'm coming to you and Adana in one second. I just want to ask, just along those lines really quick, does anybody have a custom T-shirt shop in the metaverse in that it's not that they really just focus on wearables, but they figured out a way so that people can have their own custom T-shirts um, on their, yeah, on their avatar? Let's just say in alt space alone, is there a simple way that people can have a custom t-shirt on? I've done custom t-shirts for a while. Um, I used to wear my logo on my on my dress uh, in spaces that were mine. Um, but basically, it's uh, there's there's a free like open source code for the wearables um, SDK. And so all you need to do is upload a PNG that is um, perfect size for our shirts. And then you can plug that actual 3D object into this code. And then you can actually use it in your spaces. Um, I think there's, there's a website that has information on that, but I might include it in one of my courses. That's a cool idea. So somebody who actually had a particular design or logo like you or somebody who might have something they would like for a lot of people to wear their brand in alt space could, I don't know, make them for people or sell them for people or make. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Yeah. I'm sorry. We didn't even officially start. We just jumped into conversation. So it is great to have everybody. Nicole, you want to do the honor? Yeah. Sorry, you guys were already talking when I jumped in, didn't realize. Uh, yeah, so welcome to Black Metaverse. Uh, tonight we are talking just very quickly about some news and some things that are going on in this space, uh, one of which was a concert that was just held today. Uh, Naughty by Nature was in alt space. And for those of you who got to experience that here 
in Clubhouse uh, through the, the Metaverse Meetup uh, Club. You were in for a treat. Uh, our girl Artsy here designed that space and she is absolutely amazing. And we always try to um, support her wherever she goes. Uh, so that was definitely fun. Um, so welcome to the space. This is Nicole and my voice is resting. Thank you. Uh, saw the article was okay. We as we as creators, we we who are building worlds right now need to, um, you know, kind of <laughs> make sure there are safety precautions in the space. I know we we're just talking about not by nature, um, and you know that's you can be in a bubble, right? And so, you know, it's it 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 is up to you're you're saying it, you know, should it be up to the companies? It, it should be up to the companies to create safeguards if people want to have them on. But people need to be going into a space needing to understand that they need to educate themselves about the spaces that they're going to be walking into. You know, what are the safeguards? What 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 is your comfortability when walking into spaces? Because every space is going to be different. Every space is going to have different safeguards. Some may not have any at all because it's an open space and it's that, and it's that way for a reason. Um, and so... You know, you know, my, my thing is, f from our standpoint, you know, we're talking about the black metaverse, we're talking about building, you know, our own worlds, um, you know, is to is to is to build those spaces with, you know, certain safeguards, but also to, to allow for some education to the to the user. Um, you know, as well, what those safeguards are going to be. Um, so, you know, that's that's what I thought about when I saw the space. And and hopefully, I'm sure Oculus team is looking into, you know, what what could they have done on on their end? Because it is something that is now kind of blown up on the on the news. They're, they're going to have to come back and say something. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that pin right there. And is, I think it's a stupid question, but um, so right now, um, I'm having some NFTs in my trust wallet. I'm trying to transfer it over to MetaMask. And I already had my MetaMask account set up. But I don't see any NFT transfer from my trust wallet to MetaMask. So if anyone can help me out, I would much appreciate it. Do you, uh, do you import your C3's trust wallet in the MetaMask? Uh, yes, I change it to um, the BSC network as well, Smart Chain network. So I see my account on my MetaMask, but I don't see my NFTs. I'm not sure how I should do it or import it. And the NFT was from Open on the, from OpenSea on the Ethereum blockchain. It's not on OpenSea, so um. May again change your block, you know the network on the MetaMask again. See maybe shows. Yeah, the original the the NFTs and trust wallet were they on Ethereum. Oh, uh, it's not. It's the. It's from Smart Chain. Okay, so they were BSC, and so then yes. you sent from your trust wallet the NFT to your Binance MetaMask. Is that correct? Um, actually, I just imported my whole trust wallet onto MetaMask. Oh, and then you can't see them even when you switch to Binance. Yep. Do you know correct. why? Uh, I'm not sure. 
I would guess because there's two Binance chains, one's BEP20 and one's whatever the fuck else. Um, yeah, BEP2, yeah. Yeah, yes, Bip. right? And so one of them is BEP2, I guess. I don't know if that's true. But one of them is something, and that's how Binance runs natively. And then there's a second way you can send Binance to a bridged Ethereum. Like, so when you send it to MetaMask, you're sending to BEP20. When you import to MetaMask for Binance Chain, that address is BEP20. So if your trust wallet is not BEP20, and those NFTs are not BEP20, then you won't see them in yeah. your MetaMask on Binance Chain because you will only see BEP20 tokens in MetaMask on the Binance Chain. Does this make sense? But I it think makes that there's sense. two. There's two versions. Somebody can just Google search it. I don't yeah, have a BIP2, BIP20. Yeah, okay. So then I bet you Trust Wallet runs natively on BEP2, and I bet you those NFTs were minted natively on BEP2, and when you imported your BEP2 private keys to MetaMask, it's showing you BEP20. Okay, so is there any ways that I can import my NFTs onto MetaMask in this way, in this case? Not from Binance Smart Chain unless they are unless you can bridge them to BEP20, but I'm sure you can't because when they were minted, they would have had to have been minted on one of the two chains. And if they're not showing up in your MetaMask, well, can somebody Google search, does Trust Wallet use BEP2 or BEP20? Can someone Google search that? It, so, it does. It does. It does. It definitely, and it registers. There's been an issue because I've pulled in key, like my key phrases to like uh, SafePal. And over the last three days, I can't, see those amounts they're not gone like because it's sort of like how trust wallet you can pull in a bunch right the same way like the same way but it's not showing the amounts in any way but i've you whether you say power so or something you, else so you, i've still been able to flip something is not registering it's a little bit so weird there you, might be something so extra they, going on so then yeah. you think that the trust wallet default is probably bep2 and that safe pal and metamask are using bep20 no, they have a trust wallet. They have a both. But I think um, when you go to the Binance, go to the Binance website over there, they uh, had the, you know, show you guidance to for make a network for, for example, for MetaMask. Maybe over there they have, a, for example, some code for BIP. Uh, oh, yeah, that's well. true. Custom. Okay, check this out. Google search custom bet to rpc metamask custom bep2 rpc metamask see what you sometimes on on binance the nfts won't show up he could feasibly go to bsc scan to see if they're there they could be there and just not showing up on metamask that's true that that metamask address if you copy and paste that on bsc scan you might be able to see if the token it have shown Hey, so Chris. I just, just Google. Oh, no, Scott, uh, wave to me if you need to. Yeah, just finish your thought and then we need to talk. Okay, I'll just wave to you real quick. Okay. So I just Googled custom BEP RPC MetaMask. And. Uh, 
It's the same thing that I searched earlier when I import my Binance Smart Chain. So instead of Ethereum network, I imported the Binance Smart Chain one for MetaMask, right? Yeah. The, but that's why he was asking if you look up, because like BEP20 is different. And that is like the Binance Smart Chain. Like if you're swapping stuff, right? Like the, like that's like what it switches to anyway. But like either way, like there is a difference between the BEP20 and BEP2. So they might be able to like do a custom, the same way that you added Binance Smart Chain and it was BEP20. You that search might be worthwhile. I'm like, I'm interested. I'm going to try to like do that and see like, because it's interacting with MetaMask, you know, the, um, hey, Robert, and there's something to be said about wiping it. And then you have that, that private key, just pull it back in and see, cause I, sometimes that makes a difference too, you know? I'm sorry. This, this is kind of complicated for me. Oh, I, I actually don't know what to do. Well, but thanks, thanks for all the help, though. Jobs in the U.S. They've been offered. Nurses have gone to the U.S. It's better pay. That's true. It sucks here, and they're all quitting anyways because of COVID. Oh, um, how can we make sense of a, a healthcare system that is paid for by the government? How they're not doing great. So, I mean, honestly, people are uh, untreated. Uh, there's a lot of people that charity care. There's a lot of people here that still not treated are being treated, uh, and, you know, uh, so, you know, it's all, when you're sitting there, you know, it's all relative in, t in terms of what's going, where, where you are in a spectrum, so you're saying that those other countries aren't doing great, but, you know, some of that country will argue that they are, because right now, Nelson and I, when we were talking at the meeting, Nelson pulled up a stat where, I don't know if Nelson's still here, where people that are uninsured, uh, uh, they have a likelihood of dying. What did you say, Nelson, about dying so much sooner uh, than those that are insured? Look at that, okay, about people. And he said something, something about hip, uh, hip fractures causing death was part of it. So when you look at that, you got you to gotta, uh, keep in mind that that is also uh, uh, something that is, uh, that, that's going on. Over right, it's a triage system. So everybody who gets hurt, can go into any emergency room and get treated. Not everyone who's not covered, a person who's not covered can't go into a clinic and say, give me a physical, right? They're going to send you to the Medicare office or to whatever office to get your paperwork together. So, you know, while Brian, you know, Benstock is, makes a good point, we have to really contextualize the fact that this is a triage system. In Canada, to the best of my knowledge, and Norman can, can, elaborate on this any person can walk in and say hey check me out and and walk out without a bill is that accurate norman yeah well yeah in a way most of it can we have a thing Ontario. it's all hip card and it's funny once <laughs> when i went to the states and um this years ago and of course the u.s customs just did a secondary check before i got on a plane and they just asked them for more id you know sometimes they pull you aside they go what's this i go that's our OHIP card. He goes, you guys have it made. I go, no, we pay for that. He goes, is that like your Visa credit card? Well, you show it, and they will not deny it. So if I actually walked out my house right now and fell down my stairs and busted my leg, okay, I call 911. They pick me up, go to the hospital, show them the card, 
put me in a cast, stay overnight if needed, come home and then see the specialist two days later if it's that serious. And I don't get a bill, basically. So you know, the- let me say something. Just I'm a veteran, and um, I can tell you that I'm I'm almost 41 years old, and I've never paid a medical bill in my life. And, and so it, although Brian made some very good points, what level of healthcare is does the job? Like, do we really need the best, best, best level of healthcare to be free, or can we do an okay job and and and, and it you know and it do well enough for us? You know, I can say that one time, uh, one time I had a seizure. And I live right across the street from a hospital. I had a seizure. The ambulance came, picked me up. They took me across the street. And while I was on the hospital bed, I, I, I literally pulled off all the plugs and just left the hospital because I knew that that was going to be like a $700 bill for me. I didn't want to pay it. Right? Ambulance so, bill is alone is a $700 bill. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's what, exactly. The ambulance bill alone was $700. So I, I just left. I pulled, up, I pulled the plugs off of me. And I left and I told my sister, hey, if I ever have a seizure, do not call the ambulance. Just let me let me rest on the floor. You know, that's that's kind of messed up. Oh, so I only deal with the veteran hospital and I've never paid a bill in my life. Hey, hey Larry, hey, let me contrast that with you. Uh, I, my, uh, I pay thirty three hundred dollars a month for my health care. Thirty three hundred dollars. So if, if, if we could have. Yeah, well, I got I got I got a bunch of kids. man. I, got, I don't know, half a dozen just about. Running around the house, but the family plan is thirty three hundred dollars a month. That's and a lot so of money. If you're talk, guys, if you're talking about free health care, sign me up. Because again, it's really easy for me to say I want free health care as long as you idiots are paying for it. You know, that, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's that's uh, you know, I certainly don't mean that you're idiots. Uh, and and I, I would assume that I've got pretty good health care each year. They decontent the policy a little bit more. Each year, the deductibles go up a little bit more. Each year, uh, you've got to wait till you get approval on things. And, and Brian, I may you, I ask? Yes. Have you ever used your health care in, in a variety of situations? My name's Joe. I'm new to the room, but big to the opinions, if I may. Um, please indulge me a moment. Have you ever used it for surgery? Have you used it for emergency? Have you used it for your kids? What's your experience? My, my experience has been... Over eight times. I would, uh, I wouldn't be without that health care for a moment. Uh, I think it's a steal at thir- uh, $3,300 or $3,500 a month. Uh, I've, had, I've had surgery, knee surgery, uh, MRIs. You know, they, at the end of the year, they, they lose money uh, uh, on my account. And I would assume that every year, that as I get older, that that, and my, my family gets older, my wife and I, that that's going to be even worse. Yes, and that's, that's how it is, and that's why... It- if everyone is healthcare, if younger people paying and not using it as much, it, it evens out. That's the economics. But the younger, as far people, as, are, the younger people, I'm sorry for interrupting. No, 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 no I'm sorry. People by and large aren't paying for it. Well, that's the, the problem if, if they don't, we don't have a system where the younger people come in and it's asymmetrical. As far as the, the, uh, the canned, no offense, sir, the canned, you know, uh, uh, detraction of the Veterans Administration hospitals, they have their problems, but, but they have improved in it. And, uh, it's they have improved? It's Are you easy. serious? Yeah, yeah. They haven't, bro. My sister was the CEO for Veteran Affairs during the Obama administration. My name is AJ. And okay. the story she mentioned of gross waste alone, it is wildly, wildly inefficient. But 
It is. It has gotten better, I guess. Yeah, but better, better according to what? They're still fucking, bro. They're horrible. Are you a veteran, bro, Byron? Byron, are you a veteran? I'm not a veteran, but so you've I, never been to a veteran hospital, right? Oh my god, you have no experience. Guy. Yeah, I've worked for a center. I know more hey, about hey, it. Dumbass. Hey, 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 you're okay, ass. buddy. Go. Hey, 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 dumbass! You you don't know what you're talking about. I've, I'm very familiar. You, you, with vet, you're an with expert. With the hold on one second, with the veteran hospital, I'm very familiar with it, brother. Very familiar with it. I don't even want to go into detail, but I'm very. Well, fucking you've never familiar even gone to a veteran's hospital. How could you? Now, that's a different thing from from socialized uh, or no, no, national I'm very medicine. Familiar. Brother, some, I'm very familiar. Some people have veterans in their family, and some stuff happens. They've seen stuff, so you know you can be. Byron, you ever seen any? You ever been here? Yes, I've been. I've been, and I'm very Before. familiar with it. I'm very familiar with it, brother. I'm not, this, this conversation I'm not trying is to not bash about. the veteran hospital or not. Nah, that's, that's, just a, that's, yeah, that's just a red flag. Hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. The point, the point on why I was saying that was I was trying to measure what is good enough healthcare, And so I, as a veteran, I can tell you that, yeah, I know that the veteran's hospital is not going to have the same exact care as what, what Brian would have paying, you know, three, four thousand dollars a month. But I can tell you that I'm taken care of. You know, when I broke a bone, I went to the veterans hospital. They took care of me. I'm epileptic. I get my medicine from the veterans hospital. I'm taken care of. You know, I don't. I, I, I'm wondering what level of medicine or what level of healthcare is is actually necessary when you say, "Hey, um, let's go for free healthcare." Frankly, I think we should have free healthcare. You know, now if you want to have um, an amazing level of, uh, you know, the the most elite doctors, and you want them to come over to your house on personal visits. Then yeah, you're gonna have to pay extra for that. That's that's how I see it. Well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you this. For me, I'm 40 years old. You know, thing we met in in uh in Miami. But anyway, this summer I tore my Achilles. Right, eight months ago I was paying 450 for health insurance. New York State made a change, made one tweak to my health plan, dropped it by 75 bucks. I go in to the emergency room i get seen i ask the doctor hey x-rays can i get an mri oh well because of a new change in your particular health plan you now have to go back to your pcp to get a referral to do an mri then go back to the pcp to get a referral to a specialist go back to the pcp to get a referral to a surgeon that particular change cost me three weeks between the time I tore my Achilles to the time I actually got surgery. My buddy who's in Jersey tore his Achilles a week before mine. He works at a union job. He went into the doctor one day, was in surgery 48 hours afterwards. So when you ask what level of care, the level of care to where every single person gets equal treatment across the board. One person shouldn't be able to go in and get a surgical procedure in 48 hours while another person has to wait three weeks, right? I paid for my own MRI, right? Because the insurance company takes five days to review an authorization, right? I paid for my own specialist visit because the insurance company takes five days. This is AJ, I have an add-on. Yeah, hold on one second. Hold on one second. And, and see, this is the key. This is the key. When we're talking about healthcare, we need to we need to preface by saying the quality of healthcare. That shit matters. 
Quality matters. Listen, and, and when we're talking busted Achilles tendon, what can what do you think happens to your Achilles tendon while you're hanging out waiting to get people to give you an opinion? That damn thing starts to you know things start to heal up, separated. That's no you got to act, man. And so you, you you need to have that medical care at when you need it, not going through some. If you don't shoot the tendon tendon back, it atrophies, it shortens. Yeah, and then absolutely. I, I, I would have paid the extra $75 per month in excess twice that much just to have shortened that period by two weeks or one patient. week. It's got to be taken so care the of. The question patient. is do we want a healthcare system, right? Okay, oh yeah, free. It sounds good. Free sounds great, right? Do we want a healthcare system that is just riddled with with tons of inefficiencies? Um are we okay with that? Because that is exactly what we're going to have to accept. The fallacy of false alternatives says Byron the man with the champagne on the plane. Keep going, buddy. Byron, you want to hear something funny about this? Who is this fucking guy, man? Wait, wait, wait. Let me let me let me fucking guy, man. Let me, let me Where's this fucking guy? Joe, Joe. Wait, hold on, hold on. Let's have a conversation with Joe. Let's have a conversation with Joe. Joe, what do you do for a living, brother? Are you in a healthcare space? No, sir. I'm a lawyer. I've been a, I've been a patient, patent lawyer, inventors. I've been so a patient. So why the fuck ways. do you have such an opinion on this goddamn topic? Because I've worked in health insurance companies, and I've worked for a health insurance defendant, and I've been a patient in, in a lot of different. Well, did you situations. fuck? Did you fucking know that Byron actually started his career in the healthcare field? I just don't know he's on a plane. He's fucking on a VA plane, and he doesn't know about the VA, but he's going to tell us about it. So I'd like to hear from the guys. That have so been why the fuck am I going to listen to a goddamn lawyer about fucking? healthcare shit i've been through the system man that's all okay maybe i'm a little hot forgive me byron a little hot but i mean i, I, I tune in yeah, I, cool the fuck down yeah. Hi everyone. Um, I'm it's when you fall on the street and you stay overnight in the hospital now, and they charge you one hundred and forty-eight thousand dollars. I've been disrespected. That the lawyer needs to understand. We straighten out professionals all the time. Doctors, lawyers, accountants. You come into the million marathon. We're going to straighten your ass out. Facts. Who's the lawyer? Who's the lady that was speaking? Right here, M. Um, I'm not new, new to the space, but as far as speaking, um. But yeah, um, what I my opinion about you know should it be a human right or a privilege? I say a human right, and the reason why I say this, and because we do have a lot of religious folks in here, and I don't put on kid gloves when I say this or say anything to anyone because we're all adults, right? Um, you pray to Jesus or what Allah, whatever you pray to, and say um, you be you're thankful for food on your table, clothes on your back, and shelter. Oh, that's a fucking human right. So what the fuck are you? thankful for what are you praying for but then these are the same people that turn around and said it should be a privilege okay so then that food okay so if that's the case then the food on your table the clothes on your back then that fucking shelter is a privilege as well that's what i, I just wanted y'all to kind of think on that so when you pray about food is a privilege food is a privilege it's all a privilege, it's not a privilege. yes it's some people can afford right. to eat steak all goddamn no, day no, 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 shit no, i mean right shit before it became monetary no 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 it's right no it's not a human right we wish it was the human how is steak a human right but all of it is a human right to eat you can go plant your own goddamn food you know, that doesn't um, make it a right. That doesn't make it a right because yeah, right, you still gotta make work sense. for it. They make excuses to be go out there, be poor, and be out there and be fucking bums. 
and then and then when they get Jesus or whatever in their lives. Oh, so this is the problem. Uh, I, I got to be honest. Now, fuck that. Fuck that. This is the problem. Byron, Byron, since this, this since, since problem. when did this steak become a goddamn human right? I'm fucking confused, bro. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is the when issue. did lobster become a fucking human right? <laughs> Go eat your goddamn cocoa puffs, man. What's wrong? With you? <laughs> Here's the deal. I think I think this is the this is the issue, man. This this is where people go wrong, right? This is where people go wrong on this this debate. All of this stuff is not free. Do you know what it takes to create a fucking top quality steak? Do you know what it takes for something like that to take place? What people don't factor in is that something dies as a result of that great steak. Multi, like if, For a bunch of steaks to hit a restaurant, a bunch of shit died to get there. A bunch of shit died. It was a cost to that. Somebody killed it. Somebody filleted that some bitch, and somebody, 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 somebody prepared it just for you. Keep it, keep it, keep it, leave out the steak, bitch, of champagne on the plane. It's animal cruelty. Oh. Hey man, get this fucking guy out of the fucking room. Who, who the fuck is this guy? You keep talk, talking about my fucking champagne, brother. Like, what, what's, what's wrong with you, bro? You don't like talking about champagne. Yo, he, can't, he can't afford no goddamn champagne. You know what I mean? When you can't afford something, you, you tend to, you know, dream about it. You see you see your goddamn daydreams, man. So you want to talk about it. Hold on, Jeff. You're a scumbag. You're a scumbag, Jonathan. You're scamming people twenty thousand dollars to God damn this motherfucker. Who the fuck is this son bitch at? Where's this son bitch at, man? Let's get him out of here. Let's have fun with his ass, man. I'm trying to roast somebody tonight, man. Let's light his ass up, man. Let's go. Something they want to do. So